Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender, and there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. Logic, political talk, part of the growing conservative conversation, and also part of the Patriot Journalist Network. And you can find the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. Tonight we will be talking about Rand Paul's entrance into the 2016 GOP presidential primary race. And uh, we will break down uh, his speech for one tonight. We'll also compare him with uh, some of the other candidates that at least are in 
the race, one namely Ted Cruz, which uh, those are the only two officially in the race. We'll also talk about others such as Jeb Bush and perhaps uh, Mr. West as well and others. And uh, we'll uh, go ahead and do it that way. So first, uh, before I play these clips, I definitely want to get uh, one of our panelists sitting in for our uh, panelist Dan tonight, and that is Joe. Joe, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, how are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. It's a long day. There's a lot of stuff going on, but the, the show must go on. But anyway, and that's other than what uh, you and I talked about offline. Uh, so what I'm going to do is first is, uh, you know, is doing the promotion for the show uh, tonight. I got uh, mixed reactions. And one of those uh, reactions I told uh, Darlene Cravo from Facebook, uh, that I would go ahead and read her post. And unfortunately for Rand Paul, he doesn't seem to be uh, one of his fans, uh, but we'll listen to his speech and then uh, we'll critique that and see what we think uh, and others about uh, Rand Paul and his run, uh, at least for the GOP uh, primary. And this is what Darlene states here on Facebook, that Rand Paul doesn't have a chance in hell. He already stated he would cut Medicare and Social Security that would impact the disabled, elderly, and seniors, the ones that deserve the help the most. How about cutting welfare programs for illegal criminals, deport and stop government aid fraud? And she also says uh, she still wouldn't vote for this individual ever. Uh, she says, you take care of your own first. Americans that are vets, elderly, disabled, and seniors, first and foremost, he already stated that he will turn his back on these people. He's already stated he will cut spend, spend, excuse me, folks, funding to the Americans that need it most. Done. No more answers from Hill will change my mind because any politician will lie to get voted in. If Rand Paul, in Rand Paul's case, he already put illegals, which includes 200-plus million Muslims, other countries' needs, and funding terrorist organizations above Americans. And that is from Darlene on Facebook. And so uh, we do have Cindy on the line as well. But first, uh, Joe, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, what's your well, thoughts on her comments, Darlene's comments? Yeah, well, first and foremost, um, if uh, Darlene is listening, I want to thank her for at least taking the time to um, respond via Facebook. And... Um, Hopefully, Darlene is listening. Uh, I actually heard uh, Rand Paul's first interview after he officially announced uh, that he was going to be uh, throwing in his hat for his candidacy. He was on the Sean Hannity show um, last night. And, um, you know, Sean Hannity went in a depth interview. It was about an, an hour-long interview addressing um you know, what would be his fiscal platform and addressing some of the issues that, um, um, you know, that uh, a lot of uh, people who uh, don't support him uh, may have about him. Uh, and uh, he was pretty adamant that um, he does believe that there should be uh, uh, that, how can I say, he is not in support for across the uh, across the board cuts uh, because he doesn't think that's reasonable. 
um, he actually was saying that um, he would be in favor of maybe cutting other uh, programs that uh, would be a form of uh, corporate welfare. Uh, and in return, in doing that, cutting in areas where he thinks the government is overspending so that he doesn't have to make drastic cuts to people who survive on Social Security and on Medicare. Uh, and also on the foreign policy aspect, he definitely did um, say that uh, he, uh, as president, uh, would not give a dime to uh, in foreign aid to any countries uh, who uh, publicly denounced the United States or, or against our allies, uh, such as Israel. And so um, it, it, I, I do understand the concern that um, um, some of the uh, people who don't support Rand Paul, but I, I, I highly encourage them to really take a, a good listen to what he has to say because um, a lot of what he's saying uh, contradicts um, what the uh, previous um, person posted in Facebook pertaining to uh, her fear of uh, that he wants to cut Social Security or Medicare or, um, you know, anything related to that. He adamantly stated that that is not his intention whatsoever. Let's go ahead and get Cindy's uh, take on this, and then we'll go uh, and play some audio clips from his announcement speech. Cindy, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you? Hello, Robert, and hello, Joe. Joe, thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure, Cindy. How are you? Now, good, now real good. quick, Cindy, um, a message from our good friend Angela. Thank you very much, Angela, uh, for the message. And uh, no, this show is not going to be an anti-Paul show, but I did tell her that I was going to uh, read her comments here on the show since she responded uh, to the promotion on Facebook. Uh, but we are here to vet the candidates, and we are here to get what people's thoughts are about the different candidates, regardless of whether uh, they are positive or negative, uh, because that's what we're going to be doing as Cindy at another uh, presidential election is going to be uh, coming our way. And so as we did in 2012, uh, we will do this again in 2016 uh, by vetting the candidates to get what other folks' thoughts and feelings uh, are about that. So what, are your, what were your thoughts about her comments, Cindy? Well, I thought she was pretty much dead on on a lot of things, um, but she did paint – uh, Paul a little worse than what I actually think he is. It's very difficult to, uh, you know, uh, gosh, where do I start? You know, he he endorsed McConnell when McConnell was running, and we all know on this show that there was a, a, very, a viable candidate that could have done well against him, um, but there was no way... Um, he could get any traction because people like Rand Paul had come out and uh, endorsed McConnell. Uh, and then, again, when he had a chance to get rid of McConnell, McConnell's leadership, uh, he decided to vote for him for the, um, the, the Senate leadership uh, position. Uh, again, he, he had a chance not to do that. There were pe- people that could have done that. Uh, other than him, 
Not that they would have gotten a lot of votes, but Paul could have been one of the very few that stood up against the elite, the leadership, and he could have made a, a statement, and he didn't do it. Um, he is soft on immigration. He is. Uh, she's right about uh, he will not cut across the board. Uh, he seems to want to do things like gutting our military, but um, continue spending on food stamps and all that kind of stuff. I haven't really seen him get tough on those things. So, you know, Paul talks a good talk when he's giving a speech, but when you look at his voting record and when you look at the things that he has agreed to, um, you know, now, now, uh, Harriet just wrote in the, in the, um, chat Chat. that, yeah, that Paul, I mean, yeah, that Rand, uh, She's saying, I think, I think what she's saying is that he's against sending aid to Israel. Um, he's against sending aid to everyone, uh, not just Israel. Uh, he is for uh, winding down foreign aid on a step-by-step basis. I was looking at an interview with him um, on um, where was that? On the Today Show, yeah. And he was asked, you know, did would you um, remove aid from Israel? Would you remove? Uh, he was saying that, look, my opinion is that uh, we need, we should not be borrowing money from China and sending it to other nations. Um, and he's absolutely right about that. Um, and then he goes on to say that he thinks that it ought to be done gradually, as far as eliminating foreign aid. And he doesn't uh, want to start with people like Israel. He wants to start with people who hate us uh, and would like to see us gone. So at least that is, um, you know, at least that's what he says. Um, but, you know, I I never can figure out, is Rand Paul just an opportunist? Is he a, um idealist? What is he? You know, he's hard to read, and that makes him scary to me. His dad was very easy. His dad was what you see is what you get. He didn't mince words. He didn't. He didn't try to get on good side. There was no butt kissing with with um with Ron Paul. Ron. I I just don't know that we can trust Rand Paul in the same way. Uh, I mean, Rand, uh, Ron Paul was was definitely on the wrong side of some issues as far as I'm concerned. Financially, he was pretty much dead on, but uh, there were a lot of issues that that Ron Paul and I did not agree on. (laughs) Ron Paul, but at least you you could say that he was up front. You knew where he stood on everything. There was no swishing and swashing, and um, there was no changing his mind, and there was no backpedaling to say, oh, but I meant this, and... You know, there was nothing like that with Ron Paul. You knew who you were getting uh, when you when you talked to Ron Paul. Rand Paul, I I, I can't say that I necessarily uh, could do that and be comfortable. He's very he's very uh, pro life as far as I can tell, but I even worry about that because if he'll waffle on other issues, he'll waffle on that. 
But the bottom line is, with Im- wherever it's concerned, where, where immigration is concerned, we cannot do anything with immigration until the borders are sealed. Uh, it, it really wouldn't matter what policy you came up with. Um, you, you can't do anything until you have the border sealed. And he hasn't been tough on that either. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm being so negative because there are a lot of things that I have agreed about uh, with Rand Paul and the things that he says usually sound pretty good. But then the, the other things that he does make me a little skittish. So there's other candidates that let's say I would just uh, consider them before Paul. And one thing uh, that Angela put put here uh, on Facebook, it must be here on Facebook on that. And before I, I read those, I will agree with you on this, that he did have the opportunity to back a more conservative candidate. And that is with uh, the, the gentleman we just had on last week and Matt Bevan, and he did not do that. So I, I'm behind you 100% on that one. He could have done yeah. that, and he did not. And he also, you're right, he could have uh, had the challenge go with uh, his leadership as, uh, as well as McConnell, and he did not. I do agree with those. Now, back to what Angela said. She said that uh, SR-76 uh, was a co-sponsor resolution welcoming the Prime Minister of Israel United States uh, for the address to a joint session of Congress, and he also sponsored the Stand with Israel Act of 2015. And so that's what Angela uh, puts in here. So, well, I'm not saying that Ron Paul. I'm not saying that Rand Paul is anti-Israel. Some people um, have problem with his Israel stance, and I think it's mostly because. He doesn't want to fund Israel or anyone else, basically. Um, I don't see him as anti-Israel, but I don't really see him helping Israel either. So we'll see. Okay. Well, what I got here is uh, some clips from his speech uh, to uh, announce his candidacy for 2016. So what I'll do is I will uh, play those. Uh, I'll mute the folks' mics here. Uh, and then I'll play those, and let's get, and then we'll get some commentary on uh, what we think before we move uh, in between the different clips I have here. Because this speech was about 26 minutes long, and I do have pretty much all of it, but we'll do it in, in uh, clips. Uh, but the first one is about 10 minutes, but it will give us plenty to uh, take notes and to speak about. So this is the first clip we've got for Rand Paul's uh, announcement of the 2016 running. I have a message, a message that is loud and clear and does not mince words. We've come to take our country back. We've come to take our country back from the special interest that used Washington as their personal piggy bank. The special interest 
that are more concerned with their personal welfare than the general welfare. The Washington machine that gobbles up our freedoms and invades every nook and cranny of our lives must be stopped. Less than five years ago, I stood just down the road in my hometown in Bowling Green and said those same words. I wasn't supposed to win. No one thought I would. Some people ask me, then why are you running? The answer is the same now as it was then. I have a vision for America. I want to be part of a return to prosperity. A true economic boom that lifts all Americans. A return to a government restrained by the Constitution. A return to privacy, opportunity, liberty. Too often, when Republicans have won, we've squandered our victory by becoming part of the Washington machine. That's not who I am. That's not why I ran for office the first time just a few years ago. The truth is I love my life as a small-town doctor. Every day I woke up, I felt lucky to be able to do the things I loved. More importantly, I was blessed to be able to do things that made a difference in people's lives. I never could have done any of this, though, without the help of my parents who are here today. I'd like you to join me in thank my mother and dad. With my parents' help, I was able to make it through long years of medical training to become an eye surgeon. For me, there's nothing that compares with helping someone see better. Last August, I was privileged to travel to Guatemala on a medical mission trip. Together with a team of surgeons from across the U.S., we operated on more than 200 people who were blind or nearly blind from cataracts. I was grateful to be able to put my scrubs back on, peer into the oculars and the microscope, and focus on the task at hand, to take a surgical approach to fix a problem. One day in Guatemala, a man arrived and told me that I had operated on his wife the day before. His wife could see clearly for the first time in years. And she had begged him to get on the bus, travel the winding roads, and come back to our surgery center. He, too, was nearly blind from hardened cataracts. After his surgery, the next day, his wife sat next to me. As I unveiled the patch from his eyes, it was a powerful, emotional moment for me to see them looking at each other clearly for the first time in years, to see the face they loved again. As I saw the joy in their eyes, I thought, this is why I became a doctor. In that moment... I also remembered my grandmother, who inspired me to become an eye surgeon. She spent hours with me as a kid. We would sort through her old coin collection looking for wheat pennies and Indian heads. But as her vision began to fail, I became her eyes to inspect the faintness of the mint marks on the old weather-worn coins. I went with my grandmother to the ophthalmologist as she had her corneas replaced. I was also with her when she received the sad news that macular degeneration had done irreparable harm to her eyes. My hope, my hope that my grandmother would see again made me want to become an eye surgeon, to make a difference in people's lives. I've been fortunate. I've been able to enjoy the American dream. 
I worry, though, that the opportunity and hope are slipping away for our sons and daughters. As I watch our once great economy collapse under mounting spending and debt, I think, what kind of America will our grandchildren see? It seems to me that both parties and the entire political system are to blame. Big government and debt doubled under a Republican administration. And it's now tripling under Barack Obama's watch. President Obama is on course to add more debt than all of the previous presidents combined. We borrow a million dollars a minute. This vast accumulation of debt threatens not just our economy, but our security. We can wake up now and do the right thing. Quit spending money we don't have. This message of liberty is for all Americans, Americans from all walks of life. The message of liberty, opportunity, and justice is for all Americans, whether you wear a suit, a uniform, or overalls, whether you're white or black, rich or poor. In order to restore America, one thing is for certain, though. We cannot, we must not dilute our message or give up on our principles. If we nominate a candidate who is simply democrat light, what's the point? Why bother? We need to boldly proclaim our vision for America. We need to go boldly forth under the banner of liberty that clutches the Constitution in one hand and the Bill of Rights in the other. Washington is horribly broken. I fear it can't be fixed from within. We, the people, must rise up and demand action. Congress will never balance the budget unless you force them to do so. Congress has an abysmal record with balancing anything. Our only recourse is to force Congress to balance the budget with a constitutional amendment. I have been to Washington, and let me tell you, there is no monopoly on knowledge there. I ran for office because we have too many career politicians. I believe it now more than ever. We limit the president to two terms. It's about time we limit the terms of Congress. I want to reform Washington. I want common sense rules that will break the logjam in Congress. That's why I've introduced 
a Read the Bills Act. The bills are a thousand pages long and no one reads them. They are often plopped on our desk with only a few hours before a vote. So I propose something truly extraordinary. Let's read the bills every day. From the time I was a very young boy, I was taught to love and appreciate America. Love of liberty pulses in my veins. Not because we have beautiful mountains or white sand beaches, although we do. And not because of our abundance of resources. It's more visceral than that. Our great nation was founded upon the extraordinary notion that government should be restrained and freedom should be maximized. Okay, folks, it look, okay, folks, looks like that. We went through the first clip. That's actually pretty quick. Uh, just uh, some key points that I'd like uh, to uh, point out before we bring uh, Joe back in and then Cindy. And then uh, if anyone else in the audience like to uh, chime in at 347-945-7428. Uh, this is an open forum uh, to talk about uh, who we like, uh, who we don't like, uh, what we like about Rand and what we don't. Uh, that's what vetting the candidates and what people think about the candidates is all about. Now, I don't know why candidates, it's, all the candidates always, you know, tell about their background and their story and things of that nature. One of the questions, you guys can answer this, and this is a question for me, is who really cares? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, for, for me, that just was never important. Perhaps it is. You, you folks let me know. That's their background and why you became a doctor, or why any politician became what they became, uh, you know, matter, except maybe why uh, being a politician, but any other profession, I don't know, just those stories just don't seem to, they seem to just be fluff to me. I want to know what they're going to be do, what they're going to do for America, now what they did in their past life. Um, but I did like some points where he talks about, you know, diluting our message and diluting our principles. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Uh, throughout the primary, especially with the GOP establishment when it comes to them uh, adhering to uh, principles uh, as we've seen in 2012. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Now, I do like, and this, these are things we hear every year, folks, and we, we want to touch on those. We talked about balancing the budget amendment, talked about term limits. Uh, those are something we hear every election cycle. My question is to any of the politicians, when the hell are you going to do something about it? We hear it all the time. Never, it just it doesn't happen. It's just like gas prices going down every year right before an election. But I did like uh, when he talked about the, his read the bills bill. I think that would be interesting. Uh, so, you know, I like that. But let's go ahead and uh, see what Joe thought. So, Joe, got you back on the line. So, what did you think of that part of the speech? Well, I mean, I, I thought it was a, uh, a very uh, inspiring speech. Uh, I thought it was very sincere, uh, but I think uh, when he stated that, uh, uh, I like when he stated, uh, you know, we've come to take our country back. Uh, that is definitely a strong statement against the establishment, but when he says that he wants to, uh, you know, uh, go against the Washington machine, 
uh, he kind of contradicts himself when, um, you know, Cindy made a valid point. Cindy made a valid point uh, at the beginning of the show that he did support a strong establishment candidates during last year's midterm election, including Mitch McConnell. And if anything, Mitch McConnell is um, the Washington machine uh, and is the establishment. So, uh, you know, certain aspects of the speech is, uh, you know, tends to be very um, Rand Paulish, if I may say. But there are other aspects of the speech where he kind of contradicts himself with uh, certain um, endorsements he made last year or certain capitulations he's made over the uh, over the past few years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so um, let's do with the. Go ahead, Joe. Oh yeah, and um, so I mean, to be very honest, I think it's really early in the game. Um, you know, we only have two candidates so far that have officially thrown their hats uh, in the race. And, um, you know, there's pros and cons for, for both candidates, uh, Senator Ted Cruz and uh, Senator Rand Paul. Uh, but I definitely will have to agree with Cindy. I think it's just too early yet. There's not enough, uh, there's not enough other options uh, out there right now. And it's really too early to make a decision based on uh, two candidates so far. Uh, that are in the race. Uh, I think um, time will tell as the field formulates and other people throw their uh, hat in the race. I think uh, more Americans will be able to uh, make a more informed decision or or be able to at least say they'd be able to throw their support around a certain candidate. But I just think it's just too early. Well, you know, that being said, I, I really hope that, you know, the moderates and rhinos stay out of the race this time around. <laughs> I really do. I'd, I'd rather see uh, a pool of all conservatives um, actually running, which we certainly didn't see in 2012. Now, I know that's just a hope. I, I can't imagine that actually happening, but that would be um, that, that would be my hope. And there was uh, uh, something you pointed out, and gosh darn it, I, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, about uh, – they are those being the only two officially uh, announcing their run in 2016. I, I do want to bring Cindy in soon about, uh, for her comments, but I want to, this question just kind of came up. Is, so what do you think about it? It seems like the two uh, lightning rods in the Republican uh, in the Republican Party and Ted Cruz and, and uh, Rand Paul are the first ones to, uh, to come out. What do you, what's your thoughts on that? Do you find that interesting or maybe there's uh, something behind that? What, what do you think, Joe? To be very honest, um, it, it may sound a little bit um, out of the box, but uh, it, I'm not the least bit surprised. Uh, you know, Rand Paul and um, Ted Cruz have spent uh, the past two few, uh, the past two years basically uh, gearing up, um, you know, to throw their hats in the race. Um, you know, uh, They've, uh, you know, Rand Paul has done a, a tremendous job over the past few years of uh, attempting to do something that the establishment uh, hasn't been able to successfully do uh, since the era Reagan, and that's to um, do an outreach to uh, minority groups and expanding the base. So I kind of think, um, you know, this was um, this was very predictable that Rand Paul was, uh, you know, uh, making certain moves that was hinting that he was going to run. And at the same time, 
uh, Ted Cruz was also doing the same thing. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I potentially see this as maybe, maybe I'm getting too far ahead. And maybe, you know, I don't mean to sound pessimistic. I, I really don't think um, Rand Paul will eventually win the nomination. But in a hypothetical scenario, if he did, I think uh, Ted Cruz definitely would um, be uh, the runner-up to be the vice presidential candidate. So I don't know. Maybe the two are are throwing it in there to see, uh, you know, um, which one out of the two uh, pro-Tea Party, um, anti-establishment candidates are going to get the most support and see where the chips fall. Let's go ahead and see what uh, city thoughts are in there. Let me see some other folks uh, out there, also those in the chat. Uh, see, you, just call it 347-945-7428. If you'd like to chime in on your thoughts about uh, Rand Paul, or even if you have any uh, other candidate in mind that you would like to see throw their hat in, or perhaps even uh, talk about uh, other candidates that people are whispering about being a candidate in 2016, such as Jeb Bush and uh, West. So let's go ahead and uh, get you back in here, Cindy. And uh, what, what do you think? Um, well, I just want to comment on something that Angela, Angela said. She said, another reason I watch Walker, though, if Rove is for him, I'm against him. <laughs> um, I am right there with you. In fact, I'm, it, like uh, Joe said, it's a little early to be picking a candidate. I'm going to wait and see who the media and the um, uh, you know, the elites get behind, and I'm going to make sure that's not who I'm for. <laughs> um, I'm with you. You know, uh, you know, I just wrote in chat, uh, I'm sure that Rove has another plan to give us another loser, and um, oh. and he won't, he won't stop until we have a loser on, on the ballot. So it's up to us, uh, you know, it's up to the grassroots to win this war. Um, I'm not sure we're large enough yet. Um, not sure we have enough clout yet, um, but we got to keep trying. It's, you know, I, I wish Dan was on right now because he always has some good positive, uh, uh, you know, he, I always feel like I'm the negative one. I'm the depressing pessimist that always <laughs> brings the bad news. And then Dan comes along and gives us some good news and tells us how we're going to win this thing. <laughs> and I hope there's a well, whole but lot yeah, of Unfortunately, Dan had the, uh, something came up literally minutes before the show as well, uh, uh, you know, before coming on tonight, yeah, that he had to attend to. Uh, so I'm sure we'll have him back in that. I am uh, looking to see Kelly later on. I, I, don't, I don't see him with us right now. Uh, but anyway, it's the meetings. And I did uh, talk with him yesterday and then Monday as well, I believe, about uh, tonight. And I didn't get any indication that uh, Kelly uh, would not be joining us. So uh, we're looking forward to hearing from him. Go ahead, Cindy. Well, um, I wasn't I wasn't uh, offended by his explanation of, you know, how he became a doctor and why he likes being a doctor and all that because I think it shows something about your character and I think character means a lot when you go to run for president. I I always said that um, when Bill Clinton was president, that character does matter. Um, and 
I, I wouldn't want any Republican can, candidate, no matter how good they sounded, uh, if they didn't have some some character traits that I was really proud of or could live with, you know. Um, I always had a problem that, in fact, that was my only problem with Newt Gingrich, was his affairs. And uh, But the reason I went uh, and I, I did um, endorse him was because did sound like a man who had repented and uh, was a changed man. Uh, I don't see that with... Uh, some of the other people out there that have a problem, a character issue, such as Clinton, he has never, uh, <laughs> he has never tried to change his lifestyle. It just seems to get worse. <laughs> so, um, Rand Paul, I believe, does have a good character, as long as far as I can tell. You know, a lot of people who who are really good liars can also lie about their character. Um, I'm not saying that Rand Paul is, okay? I'm just saying we don't know yet. Um, and we probably won't know unless he does become uh, president. Because then that's when you really get to see who a person is when they get into that office that you just voted them in at. And, you know, like with um, Obama, he got in there and we found out exactly who he Well, we knew who he was. You and I, Robert, right. <laughs> uh, and those of us on our show... We know who he was. We knew who he was before um, he became president. But um, he has proven to a lot of people exactly how bad he was and that we were right about how bad he would be. And um, Mm -hmm. now uh, two people have put their hat in the race now, Cruz and um, Rand. And so... It behooves us to, you know, start with those two and and uh, vet them as as best we can. And um, it's like Angela said, there there is no candidate who seems to be uh, perfect and and you know problem free. They all do this or that or the other thing that we might disagree with, and that is to be expected. I mean, how odd would that be if there was a candidate that agreed with Every single, just all three of us on the phone right now, um, Joe, me, and you, uh, right. that would be that would be like uh, yes. a one in five billion chance, right? <laughs> <laughs> because we have so many, even between the three of us, we have things that we will disagree about sometimes. So we cannot expect that Rand Paul or Ted Cruz or Walker or anybody else is going to be, um, you know, 100% with us. What we have to decide is we got to pick our battles. Which issue is the most important to me? What can I live with and what can I live without? And um, I, I don't really see anything about Rand Paul that I couldn't live with. Um, uh, as long as he's willing to to stop the spending. I like that he wants to get rid of the Fed. Um, I I like that he's pro-life, or at least he says he is. Um, There's a lot of things I like about him, and they're very important things. They're some of my most important um, issues. So 
you know, the only one that is a sticky issue um, for me that he might be a little um, soft on is Israel. I am a very strong supporter of Israel. Um, And that is because of my Judeo-Christian background, my uh, belief in the Bible and all of that. And so for me, my high priorities are pro-life, pro-Israel, pro-religious freedom, pro-constitution, fiscal responsibility. Those are my key issues. And, uh, you know, if you if you come anywhere close on all of those, you're doing real good. <laughs> and you know what was important, too, to me, always has been? What, what has this person done that really showed that he was wanting uh, absolutely dead set bent on changing back to where we were before? What what has the person done that to me looks like he wants this nation to go back in, in mm-hmm. uh, to responsible responsible leadership, responsible uh, fiscal policies, uh, responsible Supreme Court nominees, you know, just all the kinds of things that have gone so badly wrong, the federal takeover of education, all that stuff. If I see someone that really wants to, to and, and has shown that he can make a change, I'm with that person. And right now, that person, I'm leaning towards um, Scott Walker because he's one of those people like Newt Gingrich who actually did the changes. He made the changes, even among a firestorm of criticism so bad that he was called up for recall election and he mm-hmm. still won it. Right. That was impressive to me. He's a fighter and he got what he wanted in his fight. He's a good fighter. Okay? Uh, you you can have a, a fighter that has a lot of heart, but if he doesn't have that knockout punch, you know, he's just not going to get there. Scott Walker had the knockout punch, and he was tough enough to get up and keep punching uh, and keep knocking down all the comers. Um, that that impressed me. Um, now, I have a lot more vetting to do on him because I don't really know a lot about his stance on a lot of issues. So we'll see about that. Ted Cruz, the only issue, well, now, you know, there's some things he's done, uh, voted for. They've all voted for these things. I, I just don't get it, why they're not standing up to the Republican leadership and the Democrat mm-hmm. leadership. I, I just don't understand it. But it's, it's for some reason or other, these guys that are really strong in their speeches and their their viewpoints seem to be right on, they're waffling uh, on their votes in Congress. Mm-hmm. And that is very disturbing disturbing to me um i was very impressed with his shutting down the you know i I, his his filibuster was just awesome i was so impressed with that um and and i'm impressed with anyone who has the guts to go up against the democrats in such a way i mean he really made them mad and i like that (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but you know what? We sort of got the same problem with him as that we would do with Obama. As soon as he gets a, a, the nomination or starts getting ahead in the polls, people are going to start saying, well, he was born in Canada, you know. Uh, and I don't like having to deal with that with my candidate. I don't like the Democrats mm-hmm. to have anything like that to say against my candidate. Well, after Obama, there's really not much they can say. Uh, real quick uh, program <laughs> note, uh, I do see some folks on the line, and if you'd like to chime in, uh, just push the one on your number dial, and that will let me know that you'd like uh, to get into the show. And so uh, just do that, and I'll get you in. Go ahead, Cindy. No, I, I, I had said everything I was going to say uh, as far as that was concerned. Um, okay. Well, we'll, well, then we'll, we'll move forward then. And, uh, yes, while we're listening uh, to this next clip I have uh, of his announcement speech, as I said, folks, if you'd like to chime in, just push the one on your number dial, and I'll uh, get you into the show. Uh, so let's go ahead and listen to that second part. It's about eight minutes. America, to me, is that beacon. We are unique among the nations in our con- that our country stands for freedom. Freedom nurtured our country from a rebellious group of colonies into the world's greatest nation. When tyranny threatened the world, America led the way to rid the world of Nazis and fascist regimes. Resolutely, we stood decade after decade against communism, the engine of capitalism, finally winning out against the sputtering incompetent engine of socialism. We won the Cold War! America and freedom are so intertwined that people literally are dying to come here. The freedom we've fostered in America has unleashed genius and advancement like never before. Yet our great nation still needs new ideas and new answers to old problems. From an early age, I worked. I taught swimming lessons. I mowed lawns. I did landscaping. I put roofs on houses. I painted houses. I never saw work, though, as punishment. Work always gave me a sense of who I am. Self-esteem can't be given. It must be earned. Work is not punishment. Work is the reward. Two of my sons work minimum wage jobs while they go to college. I'm proud of them as I see them realize the value of hard work. I can see their self-esteem grow as they cash their paychecks. I have a vision for America where everyone who wants to work will have a job. Many Americans, though, are being left behind. The reward of work seems beyond their grasp. Under the watch of both parties, the poor seem to get poorer and the rich get richer. Trillion-dollar government stimulus packages have only widened the income gap. Politically connected cronies get taxpayer dollars by the hundreds of millions, and poor families across America continue to suffer. I have a different vision, an ambitious vision, a vision that will offer opportunity to all Americans, especially those who have been left behind. 
My plan, my plan includes economic freedom zones to allow impoverished areas like Detroit, West Louisville, Eastern Kentucky to prosper by leaving more money in the pockets of the people who live there. Imagine what a billion dollar stimulus could do for Detroit or for Appalachia. I'm convinced that most Americans want to work. I want to free up the great engine of American prosperity. I want to see millions of Americans back at work. In my vision for America, we'll bring back manufacturing jobs that pay well. How? We'll dramatically lower the tax on American companies that wish to bring their profits home. More than $2 trillion in American profit currently sits overseas. In my vision for America, new highways and bridges will be built across the country, not by raising your taxes, but by lowering the tax to bring this American profit home. Even in this polarized Congress, we have a chance of passing this. I say let's bring $2 trillion home to America. Let's bring it home now. <laughs> Liberal policies have failed our inner cities. Let's just get the facts straight. They have failed our inner cities. Our schools are not equal, and the poverty gap continues to widen. Martin Luther King spoke of two Americas. He described them as two starkly different American experiences that exist side by side. In one America, people experience the opportunity of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the other America, people experience a daily ugliness that dashes hope and leaves only the fatigue of despair. Although I was born into the America that experiences and believes in opportunity, my trips to Detroit, to Appalachia, to Chicago have revealed what I call an undercurrent of unease. It's time for a new way, a way predicated on justice, opportunity, and freedom. Those of us who have enjoyed the American dream must break down the wall that separates us from the other America. I want all our children to have the same opportunities that I had. We need to stop limiting kids in poor neighborhoods to failing public schools and offer them school choice. It won't happen, though, unless we realize that we can't borrow our way to prosperity. Currently, some $3 trillion comes into the U.S. Treasury. Couldn't the country just survive on $3 trillion? <laughs> I propose we do something extraordinary. Let's just spend what comes in. <laughs> Thank you.
In my vision for America, freedom and prosperity at home can only be achieved if we defend against enemies who are dead set on attacking us. Without question, we must defend ourselves and American interests from our enemies. But until we name the enemy, we can't win the war. The enemy is radical Islam. You can't get around it. And not only will I name the enemy, I will do whatever it takes to defend America from these haters of mankind. Okay, folks, and now we'll go ahead and uh, bring our panelists uh, back into the show to go over that second clip we have here. Uh, one of the things uh, I want to make comment on it, too, actually, is just uh, where he says everyone who wants to work uh, will have a job. Uh, now, of course, that is something that's redundant, and we hear that every election cycle. I just have to point that out because I do want to hear something different uh, from not just Rand Paul but all the candidates instead of something we hear year after year. Uh, election after election, the same thing, same thing. I want to start seeing things actually get done instead of hearing the same rhetoric. And now one of the problems that we're going to have with that is, unfortunately, nowadays, there are too many people out there who do not want to work, and it's uh, maybe easier for folks who uh, can't. And the second thing I want to maybe talk more about, because uh, I'm sure there's going to be a differing of opinion here, uh, maybe even all all the folks on the line uh, with me, is the uh, education school choice. Um, you know, back in the day, I used to be actually for that idea, and it's, it's it's a reoccurring idea that we've been hearing for a while as well. But I used to be for it, but it, not so much so now, because I've seen what uh, the detriments can be from this school choice and this voucher system. Uh, because I know folks who, you know, live in a neighborhood and they work hard, and it's a failing school district. Not, you know, maybe it, whether it's because it's a poor school district, maybe not. You know, and, but the fact is, uh, you know, in my opinion, I, you know, my daughter goes to a private school, and this might sound elitist, but I work hard and I do a lot of sacrifice in order for her to go to a private school. Okay, and I just have a, I guess I just have a, a problem of sorts with folks who aren't willing to sacrifice, you know, the way that I know I have, both with working longer hours and working more uh, so that she can go to those uh, types of school, to giving someone uh, vouchers to go to that school uh, just for the very uh, fact of where they live. Okay, now one of the detriments I've seen is I'm also a believer, and folks can uh, contend against this if you like, that folks who spend that kind of effort also spend more time you know, promoting uh, the school and being a part of the kids' education. And when that does not happen, and those children whose parents aren't as dedicated to their child's education uh, as, you know, as others, then those children don't have the same kind of respect either. And I've seen it cause problems uh, within the school uh, when, you know, it comes to violence, bullying, things of that nature. Uh, so that's definitely something we can discuss if you like. 
uh, you know, with, with my thoughts on uh, the school voucher system. This I used to be for it, and not so much now what, since I've seen uh, what it's done to some of the, uh, the the private schools by letting folks in. And they just, you know, people spend a lot of money for their and their own money at that uh, for the children to go to these schools. And then they have children who come to the schools, and unfortunately, because uh, perhaps they do have some home problems, uh, they bring it to the classroom, and, and that just uh, can disrupt it. We've got to find something to do, that that I will say. Uh, but whether it's to uh, have those uh, children going in with the other ones, and, and a lot of it has to do with parental responsibility over your own children um, instead of the children of others. But we can talk about that. But first, let's go ahead and get uh, Joe's take on a psyche clip and perhaps uh, some of the other things I uh, mentioned about with the everyone wanting a job and the school choice. So go ahead, Joe. I definitely agree with you, um, Robert. A lot of cliche, um, a lot, you know, a lot of things that uh, politicians, uh, you know, they talk a great game, but uh, they don't actually carry it out with their actions. Uh, you know, he did uh, talk about, uh, you know, imposing, um, actually implementing economic freedom zones. Um, you know, that's nothing new. Um, you know, he did uh, also talk about, um, you know, uh, igniting the great engine of prosperity, uh, you know, lowering taxes on companies, uh, being able to bring back, uh, you know, lowering taxes on companies that uh, will bring profit back home. But, um, yeah, I agree with you on the second clip. Um, I, a lot of what he had to say, I would have to say in all honesty, is a lot of what I'm hearing from almost every other politician. So I think in his first clip, um, you know, he had a lot more authenticity and what he was saying was more authentic. But on the second clip, uh, he started to sound like uh, a career uh, politician. So uh, that's my view on that. And um, also, I think you touched on a very, very important um, issue that um, not a lot of people are talking about, and that is uh, the uh, charter school system, um, uh, the voucher schools uh, versus a charter school. Um, I know that um, back in my home state of New York, um, you know, charter schools, um, which is uh, different from uh, the voucher system. Um, mm mm-hmm which uh, is has to a certain degree of success in New York. There was a big um, debate between uh, Governor uh, Cuomo and uh, Mayor de Blasio. Uh, Mayor de Blasio recently took a lot of heat for wanting to close down some of the charter schools uh, that actually had an 80% success rate, and uh, Cuomo was opposed to that. And so I do think it's... Uh, very important to invest in an education. I think um, the great thing about having a private school education, um, you know, I was uh, in private schools my whole life, parochial schools, Lutheran, uh, since I was in kindergarten. Um, you know, the great thing about sending your kids to private school is um, you know your kids are going to be safe. Uh, they have zero tolerance uh, policies when it comes to uh, your children uh, being uh, bullied or or, you know, your children being uh, attacked, uh, and they do have a robust curriculum. Uh, and in the public school educational system, it's just so eroded. Uh, you know, they uh, there's no such thing as a zero-tolerance policy. Um, you know, the curriculum is um, so outdated. Um, they, a lot of these schools in New York don't even have the proper school supplies they need. 
uh, and um, at the same time, um, you know, uh, crimes in uh, public school educational systems are uh, are on the rise in New York. I, I can't say for other states, but I know recently also de Blasio took a lot of heat because he wanted to implement another policy that stated that if a, 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 a student hypothetically were to attack another student, that that student should not be expelled, that that student should be suspended and should receive uh, counseling. And I think that's definitely sending the wrong message. Um, and I think he's definitely setting a precedent that no other mayor has ever done in the history of New York. And um, I think he's really uh, worsening things that can't uh, that one would imagine can't get get can't get any worse in New York. But um, you know, we rank 49th as uh, the worst uh, public school educational system in the nation. Uh, but um, I can say. In New York, charter schools, to a degree, are succeeding. Uh, I don't know why de Blasio would want to shut them down. But um, with the voucher system, yeah, that is definitely a slippery slope because, um, you know, you're bringing in children from a background that they're not being properly vetted. And it's not to say that, you know, I'm not forgiving people who don't have the economic means chances but I will have to agree with you, Robert. You have to be very careful who you're bringing in because, um, you know, if you're bringing in someone that comes from the wrong background or the wrong elements, uh, it is going to create a lot of chaos and a lot of um, problems in the private school educational uh, system. And it can be um, a conflict of interest for um, other students um, who uh, have been attending private schools uh, pretty much all their lives. Well, and think and think about it. These parents, you know, uh, and, and not all of them well off. I mean, I'm not well off, but I'm spending, you know, the same amount of money uh, for the tuition as the folks who are well off. Um, you know, I'm spending, you know, spending the same amount as they are. You know, and so if we're gonna, you know, spend the money and also do the sacrifice and the hard work, I certainly don't want to have my child be put in a situation where. You know, those going to have an influx of students that perhaps the parents don't have the same type of uh, values. You know, I'm not now. There's a something in the chat where someone, uh, you know, made a comment about. Let's see if I could find it. Um, you know, in the chat, and so, let's see if I can address that. Okay. Um, yeah. Someone asked me, uh, "Are you saying poor? Uh, the poor don't care about their kids?" No, I'm not saying that the poor don't care about my kids. What I'm saying is that, you know, I, I know how much people, you know, make, and I know how much I do. And there was times when I could have literally been said I was making under the poverty level. You know, I wasn't poor, but I was definitely making under the poverty level. When it, you know, and so I, and that wasn't that long ago. I know my child was still in private school when that level, but you know what, when I was eating, you know, now my kid was different, you know, they, you know, she got to eat, uh, you know, some good food, but I mean, what I would do is I'd bring a baked, you know, a, a raw potato and some, and an apple and some walnuts for lunch. I mean, that was my lunch for breakfast was an orange and a yogurt or something like that in nature, you know, and then I made sure, you know, my daughter had the right food and, 
the right breakfast, you know, but I sacrificed in that ways and there's things I didn't do. I didn't have a, a brand new car. My car was used, you know, I mean, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of, you know, you know, fancy things. I rarely ever bought myself clothes, you know, but because I couldn't, my, I put my daughter's education first, you know, I mean, after a few, of course, there's food and shelter and clothing for her, but after that, it was her education. You know, I put that before everything else. And then when I, you know, went back to college, I got a degree. I worked full time. I went to school full time, uh, you know, graduated in four years doing that. Got my degree, got a better paying job, got promotions. You know, so now I'm, you know, so I'm making more money. Uh, so I'm not saying that the poor don't, but, you know, one thing I know I showed my child was a work ethic that, you know, you you build yourself up uh, to do that. Now. My point is, is, you know, we make these sacrifices. Not the people who make a lot of money, they don't sacrifice as the ones who, do, who don't. But, we, you know, folks such as myself, and, we do, and I paid for my own high school, Joe, and for, for the folks out there. I mean, I paid my own way through. I went to uh, a private high school that I paid for myself. <laughs> you know, but by, I worked at my old grade. What I did is I worked at my old grade school after school. Um, and then all the money I made went to the high school I went to. And then if I wanted to have any play money, like, you know, all the other teenagers, you know, 16, 17 years old, I had to get another job. So I worked two jobs in high school and I went to school and, you know, had my homework to do. And so those are the things that, you know, so I hope that, yeah, so I hope that answers, uh, you know, her question. I'm not saying that I don't care about the poor. I'm just saying that perhaps, and because I've seen this firsthand, maybe that prioritization and uh, their life isn't the same as those who've uh, took other steps so their kids can go to that uh, type of education. But let's go ahead and, and get another caller in. I believe this uh, may be our friend Angelo on the line. Uh, so Eric, you're through. Thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you? Hello, Robert. I'm doing fine, except, yeah, I'm sorry, but I have to disagree with you on that one. I mean, the vouchers are a good idea. And quite frankly, if it happens to be federal and all around the nation, then all of your schools are still going to compete, whether it's a public school or private school or a charter school. They're all going to compete. If you've got $10,000 attached to each child, each school is going to want that. So that means that your public school is also going to have to raise the bar. Most of the kids who will be in public school will be the ones, unfortunately, who the parents really just either don't care about or maybe there's another reason why they can't do it. Maybe it's a transportation problem. Maybe there's another reason that they can't. But I have an issue with this idea of I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. They need to pull themselves up too. The truth of the matter is there are a million stories out there, a million different stories. Each one is different and most are valid. You've got children 16 years old, go out on a date, things get out of hand. Next thing you know, you've got a single mom. A single mom is not going to be out there working two jobs to put herself through school if she wants to be able to also take care of her child. You know, these are the choices that she has. You didn't have to make that choice, but she does. You've always got to well, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, I was a single dad. I was divorced. <laughs> you know, my daughter was two. Were you? When you uh, were my daughter school? was two when I was divorced. <laughs> Go ahead. High school? High school? No, when I was in high school, no. Okay, whenever you were going to college and working and all this, who took care of your child? I was in my 30s. I was in my 30s when I went to college. Okay. I went back so to college in my 30s. Child. Yeah, okay. When I went back to college, my daughter was four years old when I went back to college. Right, but who took care of your child when you did that? 
I, I had family members. I found people to do it. I, I paid for, uh, there was daycare as well. But not everybody's well. got family members. So, not everybody's got people who are willing or able to help. And, I mean, I know people who are unable. They would be willing to, but whenever you've got mom out there working and grandma's out there working and the aunts have to work, and everybody's out there trying just to make or just survive. You know, and, you, and then you've got your single dad, you were a single dad, so you know when that phone call comes, hey, your kid is sick, you need to come and pick her up. If you don't have anybody relying on, who's going to lose their job? You are. There are so many stories out there to sit here and say, well, I did this and I did that. That's your story. It's a great story. You did a great job. But not everybody can. And the idea of the vouchers and all that stuff, that's something that I think helps raise the bar even to the public school. That doesn't mean that your school has to lower its bar. I mean, that doesn't mean that your child's school has to be less than what it is. It can remain up there high. And your child's school has 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 um, rules. Does it not have rules? Does it have rules? Does your child's school have rules? Oh, of course. Yeah, I missed what you said. You're, you're breaking up there. So. Okay, so if your child's school has do they, rules. Do they have rules? Is that what you said? Rules. R-U-L-E-S, rules. Yeah, certainly. Of course they do. And restrictions. And stuff. So if a child comes in who's disruptive and who breaks the rules, what happens to that child? Well, the, the, her school, they get detention and, you know, things like that. If they get a certain amount of detention, they get suspended. And if uh, it goes further, then there's expulsion. Exactly. And that is the same thing that would happen but, to any other child, whether it's the, the child from the project or whether it's yours. So the child that comes in that is disruptive gets detention, gets suspended, gets expelled, and goes back to public school. But it's but 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 let me go back here. It's a process, and while they're going through the process of you know expelling a, a school, and who knows if someone's going to try to put may have a lawsuit, uh, you know, against the school for trying to expel their child. What I'm saying is you have this, this, this influx of children who may not, you know, have had the same type of discipline that. You know, other students have, and then they have this influx in school, and so they're affecting the school life, you know, of the other mm-hmm. children. How's that fair to them? Well, let me ask you something else. If a parent has enough money and puts their child in your school, oh, wait a minute, you didn't answer my question. It's fair to them. It is fair to them because it is a child who has an opportunity to learn, and the same. No, but I'm talking about the children. No, I'm saying how is it? If a wealthy parent puts an unruly child in, it's the same thing. But once, well, and as I was saying, is uh, and then it goes back to the, the students and it goes back to the parents. What do you say to but the parents who, to the wait a minute, parent, uh, wait a minute, let me finish. Whether student has money or not. Wait, re- 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 remember, as I said, I didn't have a lot of money either. And I could, and when I first started my daughter in a private school, I could have been, I could have considered, you know, been considered in the poverty level. But yet, you know, I still, t- you know, I still prioritize. And that's what I'm talking yeah, about is prioritization. There are who are prioritizing. It's just that they have nothing to cut. I mean, it's wonderful that you had an apple bowl or a baked potato. What if somebody doesn't even have that? I mean, you've got things that you can cut. You have family who can help. There are people out there who have none of that. And there are people out there who don't care. You are absolutely right. But let well, me and that, well, and that, well, and, and that is what – See, wait a minute, wait a minute, because we're no, not no, going to no, talk no, over no, each no. other. Wait a minute. Hold on. Wait a minute. Okay, we, we're not going to talk. We're not going to talk over each other. Is that? Yeah, we are. 
Well, then I, I hope we don't because we we all know, especially us long term people here on the show, that I, I don't I don't allow people, no matter who it is, to uh, to be talking over folks. So let me make this let, let me make the point. Two two things two points we're making. I'll actually make three. One is those things do exist. Okay, where that they they can't afford it, they don't got the means, or what have you. Okay, that is what public that is one of the things public schools was built for. But the public schools that are built for that are failing. Okay, that's one point. Two, my point is, is you have, you know, and it's unfortunate that, you know, you have the, the, the troubled kids or what have you, but they, they come in and, the, you know, they could disrupt the other students, okay, who are not, you know, prepared to be in that kind of environment because that's not what they've been brought up to. That's just how life is. And three, what do you tell the parents who – are picking themselves up by the bootstraps, who've worked hard to put their kids in there, didn't take any of the government vouchers, whatever, and say, okay, your work, okay, because you have this, because you've done this, then you, we're going to make sure, look, I work hard. Look, and this might, as I said, this may sound elitist, but, you know, and I know you don't, people don't want to hear it, but you work hard to put, you know, put them in that, somebody would say secluded situation, and then it's not so secluded anymore. Then you're telling me me working me working hard really meant nothing because now my student my child is not is is in the same position as those who did it. What do you tell parents then? Okay, well, first of all, I believe we're coming from a different premise. Let's start with the idea that the people who are going to be sending their children to that school, first of all, will probably be the ones who do care about the children's education. They're not going to be the ones who don't care one way or the other. Why would they send them to a elite school if they don't give a one way or the other? Two. Well, because they could send their kid to a private school without having to pay for it. I've seen it. But can they? I mean, if, 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 you, if you have rules about going into the school, if you have a certain level of of expectations coming in, academic expectations, um, certain rules and regulations that have to be followed. Yeah, are there academic expectations? Because if some schools are, do, some, some do, some don't. It just it, it, it depends on the individual school uh, school district. And that person still has to meet those requirements. It's not a question of. I mean, if your only requirement is money, then what you've got is a child up at the upper echelon who is spoiled rotten, entitled disruptive, horrible child, well, that child gets kicked out and the parent sues because you kicked out their little darling. Well, I mean, come on, that's the same but, way with the that, but that's a bit, well, I'm, but I'm going to get Cindy in here for a second, but see, that's a misnomer. Uh, I, what I mean by that is that just because a kid was, you know, was, was and, and I would contend to say that any kid, just because they were born up wealthy, now, now frankly, a lot of the kids in my school, uh, you know, where my daughter goes to school, their parents are wealthy. I'm not one of them, okay? And I know how some of those kids could be. Now, while they could be just as mean as any other other kid in the school, they're not getting any kind of legal trouble or anything of that nature. Um, but just to contend that just because, you know, they, they, they come from the upper echelons that those kids are going to be, you know, nasty, spoiled brats, you know, then uh, I'd have to disagree with that one. But we'll go ahead. Of course, well, we keep you uh, Robert, on the line. But I do want to bring, I do want to bring Cindy in. Uh, okay, so like she can discuss the clip or anything else. But let's let's go ahead and get Cindy uh, back in there. We haven't heard from her for a while. Go ahead, Cindy. 
Well, Angela, I'm with you. I am for um, vouchers, but I, I want to put Robert's mind at rest here. Um, uh, first of all, a lot of schools may not accept the vouchers, and they won't be required to um, because uh, along with getting government money, sometimes they require uh, certain things of private schools that private schools are not going to be willing to 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 um, to do, for instance, teaching the Common Core junk, uh, uh, collecting certain private data on the kids. Um, you know, the, the things that we hate about Common Core will be forced upon anybody, will probably be forced upon anybody who well, accepts about this. And now let, let me, me interject real quick, Sandy, and I'm just going to make one sentence, or maybe two, is okay. Common Core is in the private schools. Go ahead. All right. Well, um, you know they they make that choice that they want. I, yeah, um, mm-hmm. it, it will not. It, it, the school that I have put my kids in before. I'm a homeschooler, and you know that. I'm I homeschool right. because I, I wish I could homeschool, work. but I can't do that. So I do do the next best thing. Good. I cannot afford a private school, so I have to put them. In, in homeschool. That's the only way to keep them out of the public. Uh, and now, my husband works very hard. He's a farmer. He works many long, hard hours, even though he's over 60 years old. And my my son works right alongside him. He is also a farmer. My daughter-in-law works very hard to give uh, care to an elderly gentleman, but she does not get paid hardly anything for it. They cannot afford to send their two children to private school. That's all there is to it. Neither can my daughter, who is now uh, under a boatload of um, college loans because she's now in her master's mm-hmm. program. It is not a viable option for us to, I don't care how much harder we work, we cannot put all those kids into public school, I mean, into uh, private school. Now, if we were allowed vouchers, we could do that. And the private school that we have always dealt with, when my kids were small, um, uh, always had a, a document that the parents had to sign, that they would adhere to the rules. Uh, if they did not sign that document, they were not, their child was not accepted. There's another thing that occurs in private schools. They get full, okay? There's a lot of uh, private schools who are totally full up. They cannot uh, they cannot take another child beyond a certain number, or they'll have to build more buildings. Well, you and I know that private schools, even though they, um, uh, you know, charge uh, tuition, cannot often afford things that public school can. And that's usually because public schools spend about double what uh, private schools actually spend. Uh, Now, there are elite schools. I have friends in Texas who have kids in schools that are $20,000, $25,000, upwards of $30,000 a year to put their kids in those schools. And there will always be those elite schools that are priced so high that even with a government voucher, people like me will not be able to afford them. And that's okay. I don't mind that. As long oh, as I can afford that school, either. <laughs> uh, right. As long as I can have a school 
that uh, my children can go to that um, will stick to the values and education that I desire for my child, and it is a choice, and I am able to make it because now the tax money that I have put into the system, I get it where I deserve it. Um, it's it's just like, um, um, you know, when you give Social Security uh, you pay you pay into Social Security, you ought to get it back. Well, I am paying my property taxes. I'm paying huge mm-hmm. property taxes. And, sure, and the yet, property taxes go to go, go to the school kids, systems apart. Right, exactly. They're mostly and so now my kids can't get that money because our schools here in Volusia County are failing schools mostly. And my child is not going to go to those schools but I can't get my tax money back. I can't make the choice of where I want to send my kid. The voucher program gives me that choice, and I get what I want and what I deserve because I have paid into it. I'm not asking for for money that I haven't paid into. I'm not asking for money that I'm not entitled to, but I am paying my taxes. And we're going to we're going to bring Joe back, uh, into this uh, in a little bit, and then we'll go to the uh, the third and final clip uh, I have uh, with Rand Paul. Is that okay? You, you mentioned the you know Uber Elite schools. Okay, right now, I, I, as you all know, I, I send my daughter to a, a private school. So what's that to say? You know what? Hmm, that's just not good enough for me. Okay, I think my child you know, deserves to go to one of these Uber schools. So maybe I should go to the, ask the government to give me a voucher so that I can have her go to the next step and go to the, you know, go to the, one of the, the, these Uber schools. Okay. So let, let's go ahead and take it to the next step for that. Now, property taxes, as it is there, and it is here as well, is that's what it pays for. That, I mean, it, it, in part, it pays for, the public education. Now, it's not because of the amount of tax dollars, as we all know, that the public education system is failing. Throwing more money at it is, is, is not going to work. Something else is going to, you know, have have to work to get the schools back and being failing. Okay, but but, but yeah, you know, like, we talk about you like know about choice. Go ahead, like teaching what they're supposed to be teaching, and like keeping. Uh, discipline in the classroom. That's the only thing that's going to change well, a school. Well, certainly, and I and I agree. I, I agree with a lot of that. But and that's what I'm and that's what I'm saying is that we we all know that, and for the most part, in private schools, the discipline is is, is heftier. Okay, the amount of you know problems that go on in the, in the school among students is smaller in private schools. That's why I send my kids there. That's one of the reasons why I send my kids, and I have one right now. That's why I send her there, okay, because of that. And, you know, and I sent her there as a single dad for years. She's in the eighth, seventh grade now. She's been in private school since, you know, since kindergarten, you know, and I was a single dad for five of those years, okay? So, I mean, I, I know what it can be like. You know, but what I'm saying, Robert, I'm having problems. That, you know, I'm it's, having uh, problems the, following the, your point. Why, why that's a bad thing that you would go up to the next level because now you can afford it with the government voucher. Why, why is that a bad thing? 
So, so, well, so I should be able to get a government voucher so that my kid could go to an Uber school, to one of those Uber right. elite schools. Right. If you no, can afford regular private school and they give you a voucher so now you can afford a better school, why is that a bad thing? The reason it's a bad thing is why do I have to take even – why do I have to – and, and I pay taxes and this and that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why our taxes are higher is because not only do they, you know, property taxes going to pay for the public schools and run into public schools, and how are the public schools going to get better if we're taking the money from the public schools and putting them in the vouchers so that they could go to private schools? You know, eventually, I was, as get, I said, originally I was for – Competition I'm is sorry, going to Cindy, make them breaking better. Up. Competition is I'm going sorry. to make them better. Okay, I'm I'm trying. <laughs> I heard you. I heard you. I heard you. I heard you said you said comp, you said competition is yeah. is going to make it better. Competition is going to make them better. Yeah, they're either going to die or they're going to compete. And and once once they realize well, that they what cannot, is the public, what they does it matter to the public schools they whether they go ahead. Sorry. Well, what does okay. it matter Go. to the public schools whether they live or die because they're also on a ta- on, on surviving on tax money? Well, you know, I'm 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 not against getting rid of the public school. We had we had no public school before the 1800s, and and we had very intelligent people, and a lot of people who were our president were homeschooled, and um, but without Go ahead. Well, you can't. I don't see what the big deal is about having a public school. If you had um, schools that were done by, say, Christian organizations or private organizations who really wanted to educate kids, I think that would be a whole lot smarter than than sending a bunch of kids to school when they don't want to go to school, and and then just uh, just completely causing mayhem in their in their high schools up into the point of mass murder. I mean, why should a person like that be in school if that's if that's the kind of person that that, that a parent is raising? You you cannot mix children like your child and children like these nutcases that are uh, coming out of completely bad homes. I mean really bad homes. Completely dysfunctional. And 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 you want you want all these kids, the public school kids that can't afford to go to a private school, you want all of them to be in the same class together? I, I just don't think that's fair. I, I really don't. No, I don't I think that I don't think they should. <laughs> so so uh, vouchers gives you the opportunity to go to a school where the school has the right to say, because they're not public, okay? So they have okay. the right to say, you you are not accepted in this class, you're not accepted in the school, or you're expelled from the school because your behavior is not uh, acceptable. Okay. The, uh, let, let, let's say the, the the voucher system was nationwide. What would keep? And then I want to bring this to Joe, and then I want to bring us back on uh, with Rand Paul tonight. So you know, if, if these vouchers were you know went nationwide and they just spread, what what's to keep a parent from having their kid go to a public school at all? When when they don't uh, have I'm to, sorry, when I, they could just 
they can just get the more money from the government and give it to a, a you know a private school and go there. Why would they Why would they send their child to a public school at all? Why should they? Yeah. Why should they indeed? And and, I don't and think what about the people? Well, and the, well, and then what about the people who do pay for their child to go to school because they make too much money? They shouldn't get the money to give vouchers from the the government. They pay taxes too. Heck, they probably pay more taxes than we do. I'm, Why I'm are they sure getting vouchers to send their kids to school? I'm not sure what your point well, is. There. Well, but my point is, is, is they, they're paying taxes too, right? I mean, because one of the points I was made is, well, I pay a lot of taxes. I should, I should use the money that I pay for taxes to, to pay for these vouchers for them to go to a private school. Wait a minute. You're saying they, so I, I need to know who the they is. That's my problem. Okay. Folks who already send their children to public schools and pay money out of their pocket. They pay, well, see, here's one of the things you I thought. But you know what? Right. You mean okay. For school? instance, right. People who pay people who pay their own money, they don't get money from yeah. the government to send their kids to a private school. Like myself, right. for instance, my tax dollars, my tax dollars. And here's another thing about personal responsibility. My t- tax ball, my tax dollars, pays for, you know, through property taxes, pays for the public school system or it goes towards the public school system, and. I use money out of my pocket to, to – what? You're saying you're happy, Am I happy about, about that? It? Certainly not yeah, because they, I'm, I'm, I'm paying I'm, – I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting doubled up on paying for education. I'm not only paying for exactly. my child's education. I'm paying for other child's education, and that's kind of right. my problem with it. Why am I paying for my child's education and other people's children too? You know, where's, that's where well, personal that's responsibility comes from. That's why you from. need a voucher. That's why you need a voucher, Robert. No, but the voucher's from the government. The, the, that's what I'm saying. Here we are. We're, we're supposed to. We're supposed to be small government people, but yet we're talking about taking gov- money from the government. How about they? How about Robert, they not tax us so much? How about? Well, how about they not tax us so much with the with, with with the property taxes? We can use that money, you know, that we're not paying on taxes, you know, for property okay, taxes, that's, and that's put that towards kids' school. That's perfectly acceptable, but I think it's unrealistic at this point because they're not going to abolish the Department of Education until we get somebody in there that is against the Department of Education, like Newt Gingrich was. Um, you, 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 if you don't get rid of the Department of, of Education, then you're never going to get rid of that property tax that takes your money away. That's all there is to it. So until that happens... The voucher is the second best way to go, way to get your money back from the government. Well, then how am I going to get my money back? <laughs> but I, I just because I, I'm still spending for. You get your voucher. Then, That's how you get your money back. But I'm already, but I'm already spending the money to, to send her to school. So, <laughs> That's insane. What if somebody is already spending the money? Out of their own pockets to send their child to school. We're, we're already year doing you it. Won't have to. Next year you won't have to. If, if it's if but, the but who's going to pay for the private pay, school? Why then? should we pay for why should we pay for failing schools? Why should we pay well, for failing? Well, then they need to, they, well, then, well, and they need to fix the school. So I know I, I agree with that. 
But so the answer to give everybody, you know, even the people who are paying for it, you know, the the private you school give them give all vouchers. But I want to bring I want to go ahead. To I, I do want to bring this back to Joe because we 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 okay. we've ignored Joe for too long, and we don't want to okay. we don't want to do. Uh, <laughs> the, he probably Kelly, has lots Kelly, of We don't want to do Kelly's eighth deadly sin. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, actually, uh, I, I can't believe the topic has turned into modern class warfare here. I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> Seriously. Um, it's surprising uh, what you get bring... on uh, Bard's Logic, huh, Joe? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. Um, I'm going to bring some facts into this and let people come to their own conclusions. Um, first of all, um, only 14 states, including D.C.s, participate in the voucher program. Only 100,000 students one across the U.S. Ohio, right. Uh, are participating in the program. Uh, and only 190,000 students take advantage of the tax credited funded scholarship programs to pay for the um, uh, vouchers. Now, here are the statistics on charter schools because I heard something from Cindy that you were saying that there is no other option except for vouchers. But when you look at charter schools, the facts don't show that. There are more than 65 100 charter schools serving more than 2.5 million children across the country as of December of 2014. So right there, what does that say? It says that obviously I have to agree factually based on Robert, there is a reason why only 14 states, including D.C., and only 100,000 students participate in the voucher program versus the overwhelming 2.5 million children across the country serving over 6,500 uh, charter schools. It's because there are a lot of flaws within the voucher school programs. Uh, there are a lot of flaws, and I'm going to point to you uh, a few of the flaws. First of all, number one, private schools, they try to discourage as much as they can uh, not accepting uh, vouchers or finding a loophole around that. And it's for the very reason, it's not because we're demonizing people who um, come from uh, poor, poor uh, background, just as we shouldn't be demonizing people who work hard for their money. I, I find that there's a double standard here. You see, I hear the argument of, well, what about the people who, you know, are single parents? Or what about the people who don't make any money? Okay, but then there's a double standard. What about the people who have worked hard? Um, you know, what about the people who put themselves through college working two, three jobs? What about the people who sacrificed everything without getting a handout from the government and have actually succeeded in doing so? Um, you know, a, a lot of misconception out there is, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, Private schools, uh, the majority of the students that attend private schools come from uh, well-to-do uh, backgrounds. That's actually inaccurate. I grew up in private schools uh, since I was in, in, in preschool, back in the days when we didn't have vouchers. And let me tell you something. My parents didn't have much, but they sacrificed whatever they could. While my mother mm -hmm. was in college as a single uh, parent raising me uh, to sacrifice and you know, she didn't have great economic means, but at the end of the day, she was not going to put me in a public school in New York where she was going to worry about if I was going to come home alive. Another interesting statistic, 
the United States spends more on education globally than any other country, but yet, yet we rank the lowest in every single field of science and math and engineering than other countries who spend a fraction of what we spend. So the, public, the solution is not pumping more money into the public school education. If anything, in New York, uh, I don't know what they're doing with the money, Robert, because to be honest, the public schools don't even have the necessary supplies they need to provide to the students. So now we have vouchers versus charter schools, and you look at the statistics. Well, you've got teachers making eighty to $100,000 a year when they work nine months out of the year. Exactly. And, and, and another problem is in unionized states such as New York, which is not a right-to-work state, the unions are very corrupt. Not only that, you have teachers who are protected by tenure uh, and teachers who are not even cutting the slack, and you have the unions that are protecting them instead of looking at the best interest of the children. And so the facts speak for themselves. If voucher was a better solution and if the voucher system was so successful, then why are they only implemented in 14 states? Why do they only have 100,000 students across the United States participating in it versus the charter schools? So I have to say, Cindy, I disagree with you. No, they are, uh, their charter schools is another great option that at the same time does not put private schools at risk. And I have to agree with Robert. Why should our taxes fund private, fund public schools? And then at the same time, where not only are we being overtaxed, and at the same time, hardworking parents that also have to pay out of their pocket who are not accepting vouchers also have to pay for private schools. Why are we funding a failing educational system that continues, the powers that be, that continues to let it fail because they're protecting teachers who don't cut the slack, teachers who shouldn't even be teaching but are protected by unions. And that they don't even have the supplies to give to the students. You have classrooms that have over 45 students for classes in the state of New York. And a lot of people are asking, where is all this money going? Discretionary spending. All the money that I claim that is going to fund public schools, where is it going? Uh, well, I don't really think it's going to the public schools, that's for sure. So uh, I also don't think... Um, I, I think there's a big double standard here. You see, I like I like it to be fair for both sides. You know, you have to look at the angle of the person who doesn't have the means, but you have to also look at the angle of the person who has the means. And there's a misconception out there, class warfare, that every rich person, everything they have was handed down to them, that they so somehow inherited millions of dollars from their uh, parents, and they have everything in a silver spoon. And that is a big misconception that is totally inaccurate. As a matter of fact, a majority of millionaires, self-made millionaires, are people who grew up in impoverished neighborhoods, who grew up around, uh, who grew up with single parents, who grew up uh, around gangs and projects, but you know what? They made the right choices. It comes down to making the right choices free will. They chose to work their hinds off. They chose to stay on the right path. They chose not 
to succumb to the gangs, to drugs. They chose to take the opportunities that are afforded by this country that no other country allows you, that no other country gives the opportunities that we have, that a person can come from nothing and make it to having the silver spoon in their mouth. You know, there's a and saying, let me and let me make a quick let me make a quick real quick, Joe. Let me make a quick disclaimer while it's while it's in my head because you know before sure. before I move on. And let me tell you how many times that throughout the years, and it's still going on, where I've had my daughter come to me and say, "Daddy, you don't have you don't have enough time for me. You don't have time for me. You're always working." Stuff like that. I've heard that for years. You don't, you know, you, you don't ever have time. I mean, it breaks your heart. It really does. It breaks my heart. But she'll understand, hopefully, one day, you know, why I do what I do. Okay? She doesn't understand now. She's a kid. And she won't be understand until she's an adult. And hopefully, even then, she will. But when you hear your kid say that, you don't have, you know, you, you don't have enough time for me. And you don't, uh, you know, you're always busy. You're always working. You know, we we hear that, you know, and we would love to be able to spend more time with our kids and this and that. You know, I mean, even if there's time where you just have to have time to spend to, to, to work and help them with their homework, which that's the only time I ever do spend time anymore, it seems, whether it's to help with homework and then that's it. You know, so and then the other time I'm working or whatever. So we we hear that and that's. One, that's also part of the price that we have to pay to do that. And so go ahead, Joe. I just I just wanted to get that off my chest. Oh, no, definitely. No, I think that was um, a valid point because uh, I remember when I was um, in the third grade, my mother went to school uh, in her 30s, it was a single parent raising me, and um, didn't uh, have much time to play with me or, uh, you know, I, I, felt, I felt neglected. I I did where I was young. I didn't know any better. I mean, you know, that's what the child is going to perceive. But you know what? Later on, as I grew up and I realized the level of education I received and the sacrifice she made, the ultimate sacrifice, uh, and um, how hard she worked um, putting herself to the college uh, and also sacrificing. Uh, you know, I always tell my mom, Mom, I love you for doing that. I think that was one of the best decisions you made is that you valued, that you instilled upon me at an early age that an education is 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 vital. An education, a good education is important, and that's going to open your doors uh, to uh, further opportunities. And I'm just grateful to her uh, that she did that because I really don't think I would be where I'm at right now if honestly I was subjected to the public school educational system, uh, you know, maybe a little bit hyperbole, I don't know if I'd be alive today, but, um, uh, you know, um, I, 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 I definitely have to say um, it's just a big misconception, and, and that's what the left is doing, demonizing the rich, uh, you know, automatically assuming that, you know, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And I remember my mom used to say, you know, there's two ways to get the silver spoon in your mouth. You're either lucky to be one of the very few that's born with it, or you work your way to get the silver spoon in your mouth by putting yourself through college and getting an education. And she's right. You know, the, the you know it's not the misconception that you know you know most rich people had it handed down to them. You have most rich people who have worked their blood, sweat, and tears to achieve what they have. And I find it 
a hypocritical of the Democrats that if you're a conservative uh, wealthy uh, individual, you're evil. You know, they demonize you. But if you're a billionaire like George Soros or Bill Gates, oh, you're good. That's okay. Yeah, you, you don't you're fall into classification. <laughs> yeah, you won't even have a debate about how much money you have. Right. And the irony of it was for, for President Obama, who was in 2012 on the campaign trail preaching about income inequality, while he was having fundraisers that were at $35,000 a plate, and I can assure you the only people who, would, who, who afforded those uh, dinners were people who were definitely in the million-dollar brackets, that's for sure. So that, that's the hypocrisy that really gets me on the, on the left, that if you are a wealthy, conservative Republican, you are demonized. But if you are a liberal, you're not even mentioned. <laughs> it's not even a factor. They try to hide the fact that you're even a multi-million billion, a billionaire like George Soros. So, you know, there is that double standard, and that, that, that is the hypocrisy. And uh, that really is the angst that, that, that consumes my heart, I would have to say, in all honesty, Robert. It really is. And uh, it's this modern class warfare. I'm tired of hearing about it because there are so many children who came from nothing, but they made the right choices, and they are where they are today. And yet they're being demonized for that. And, and society is giving them a pass to the, stu- to the people who grew up with those same circumstances but by free will made the wrong choices and we're so quick to give them a pass. Oh, well, they were raised out of wedlock, you know, born out of wedlock. Oh, well, you know, they were around the projects. Well, so was Herman Cain. If, if anyone heard Herman Cain's story, he was raised in the projects as a child. And he mentioned that on the campaign trail in 2012. He came from nothing, from a single parent, and he's a self-multi-made uh, uh, millionaire through blood, sweat, and tears. And I, that was his message on the campaign trail, and that's really what I liked about his message that was different from the other candidates. He was saying, nothing was handed down to me, but yet I'm being demonized for taking, for, you know, uh, taking advantage of the same opportunities. I am where I am because I made the right choices. Same circumstances as other people, but I made the right choices. And I think that we are enabling those. We're enabling those who are choosing to make the wrong choices by giving them a pass. And that has to stop, in my opinion, Robert. And and last comment before I play that that, that last clip we've got uh, for Grandpa. I'm one of seven children. My dad was an accountant, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom to take care of you know, take care of the children. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the take care of those kids. Uh, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and play that uh, third clip here from Rand Paul. We'll make some uh, comments on that. Thanks, folks. We need a national defense robust enough to defend against all attack, moderate enough to deter all enemies, and nimble enough to defend our vital interests. But we also need a foreign policy that protects American interests and encourages stability, not chaos. At home, conservatives understand that government is the problem, not the solution. Conservatives should not succumb, though, 
to the notion that a government inept at home will somehow succeed in building nations abroad. I envision an America with a national defense unparalleled, undefeatable, and unencumbered by overseas nation building. I envision a national defense that promotes, as Reagan put it, peace through strength. I believe in applying Reagan's approach to foreign policy to the Iran issue. Successful negotiations with untrustworthy adversaries are only achieved from a position of strength. We brought Iran to the table through sanctions that I voted for. Now we must stay strong. That's why I've co-sponsored legislation that ensures that any deal between the U.S. and Iran must be approved by Congress. policy, it's the law. It concerns me that the Iranians have a different interpretation of the agreement. They're putting out statements that say completely opposite of what we're saying. It concerns me that we may attempt, or the President may attempt, to unilaterally and prematurely halt sanctions. I will oppose any deal that does not end Iran's nuclear ambitions and have strong verification measures. And I will insist that the final version be brought before Congress. The difference between President Obama and myself, he seems to think you can negotiate from a position of weakness. Yet everyone needs to realize that negotiations are not inherently bad, that trust but verify is required in any negotiation, but that our goal always should be and always is peace, not war. though that we do not project strength by borrowing money from China to send it to Pakistan. Let's quit building bridges in foreign countries and use that money to build some bridges here at home. It angers me to see mobs burning our flag and chanting death to America in countries that receive millions of dollars in our foreign aid. I say it must end. I say not one penny more to these haters of America.
defend our country, we do need to gather intelligence on the enemy. But when the intelligence director is not punished for lying under oath, how are we to trust our government agencies? Warrantless searches of America's phones and computer records are un-American and a threat to our civil liberties. I say that your phone records are yours. I say the phone records of law-abiding citizens are none of their damn business. The president created this vast dragnet by executive order. And as president on day one, I will immediately end this unconstitutional surveillance. I believe we can have liberty and security, and I will not compromise your liberty for a false sense of security. Not now, not ever. We must defend ourselves, but we must never give up who we are as a people. We must never diminish the Bill of Rights as we fight this long war against evil. We must believe in our founding documents. We must protect economic and personal liberty again. America has much greatness left in her. We are still exceptional, and we are still a beacon for the world. We will thrive when we believe in ourselves again. I see an America strong enough to deter foreign aggression, yet wise enough to avoid unnecessary intervention. in America where criminal justice is applied equally, and any law that disproportionately incarcerates people of color is repealed. I see an America with a restrained IRS that cannot target, cannot harass American citizens for their political or religious beliefs. our big cities once again shining and beckoning with creativity and ingenuity, with American companies offering American jobs. With your help, this message will ring from coast to coast, a message of liberty, justice, and personal responsibility. Today begins the journey to take America back. To rescue a great country now adrift, join me as together we seek a new vision for America. Today, I announce with God's help, with the help of liberty lovers everywhere, that I am putting myself forward as a candidate 
for President of the United States. Okay, folks, and it looks like we're getting ready to go into the extended period for our discussion here uh, on this uh, last clip. And it looks like uh, Kelly, unfortunately, will not be uh, joining us this evening. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to hear from him soon. I know he has uh, a lady coming on next week to uh, go over, uh, talk more about Agenda 21, which is a topic that we've had here on the show previously. So we're going to be looking forward to that. Uh, but let's go ahead. First, we move on by bringing uh, Cindy back on the line to go over that clip, and then uh, we'll bring in uh, Angela, and then we'll bring it back to you, Joe. Uh, thank you very much, Cindy. So what did you think about that portion of uh, the clip there with what uh, Rand had to say? Well, you know, these speeches all sound like utopia, so let's just hope that's really all his feelings and that's how he's going to govern if he becomes president. But there's really only one foreign question, foreign policy question, that I have at the top of my list, and that is, are you willing to allow Israel to protect itself without receiving any sanctions from you or the UN or anybody else in the world? They, they need to be able to be free. They need free hands so they can protect themselves, and we can give them any logistical help that they need. Um, but But basically, you know, they they just, you know, you have to let people over there protect themselves because they're, they're surrounded. I mean, has anybody ever looked at the size of Israel? It's like smaller than New Jersey, okay? It's it's small, It's about as small as Delaware, okay? <laughs> and, and yet, and they're surrounded on all sides by enemies. And yet, we want to try to tell them how to, do their business we want to try to tell them how to how they can or can't what they can or can't do to protect themselves uh they know they are they are realists they just showed by their last election that they know exactly what their future holds for them if iran gets a nuclear weapon Mm -hmm. you have you have to annihilation yes and so you have to expect that israel is going to have to someday do something, take out um, that nuclear program. I hope it's not too late because they've moved so much of it underground now that um, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure Israel has the capability anymore uh, to do away with the whole thing and uh, hmm. the, or or the intelligence anymore. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm just, uh, um, you know, and the thing is, <laughs> soon as they finish their little deal with little Israel over there, they're heading for us. They're heading for, the, for Europe and the rest of the world. You know, they want the whole world. They're not satisfied with being over there in the Middle East. They they want the caliphate, the, the 12th imam and the caliphate of the whole world uh, belonging to them. That is the goal. And whether you are a moderate or a radical Muslim, that is your goal. And so the moderates who say, who see the radicals getting the job done, they're like, they're not going to make any fuss about it. You know, they're not going to say, quit doing that, because they see that the radicals are um, being successful in certain areas. Uh, And they see a president like President Obama, who is so weak and, uh, well, he's actually part and parcel to it. 
you know, he's he's <laughs> facilitating mm-hmm. them. So um <clears throat> so naturally they see that and they're encouraged. They're not they're just sitting around being quiet and just waiting for the radical crazy people to go ahead and take over, you know, and they don't care. Except the women, I'm sure there's a lot of women who care. They're <laughs> they're trapped. They're totally trapped. They have no some of them are so brainwashed they don't even know how tra- trapped they are. Right. Others have have had communication and they've had access to the world around them uh, through internet and and travel and things like that. And so they know they know what they're missing. They know what's wrong in in their Muslim communities. Uh, but basically, <laughs> there's not a man who would who wouldn't agree. You know, with with that kind of a life, it's a man's world. You know, and they don't want to give that up. So, anyway, I, I, did did Delhi get back on? Is, is yeah, I could probably, uh, actually, yeah, we got her uh, back in here. So let's go ahead and bring her back. Go ahead. Hello. Um, actually, I haven't heard about his. Um, how he feels about tying Israel's hands, but I can tell you that his father gets a lot of flack for his foreign policy, but he did say over and over again, we give Israel money, but we tie their hands. We tell them what they can do and what they cannot do. We don't allow them to defend themselves. Now, Rand Paul did say that an attack on Israel is an attack on America, and I put that that link in in the chat. So I do know that he said that. As for the rest of it, I figure he probably follows along with his dad's line as, you know, if we tell them they can't, that's wrong. We can't do that. I mean, they need to be able to, he believes in sovereign nations, he, you know, and they are sovereign. I am going to have to yeah. mute that. Mm-hmm. Those All right, bye-bye. What happened? What happened to her? <laughs> Did she hang up? No, something with uh, her, her dog, I guess. Or Did it sound what it sounded like? <laughs> I heard something screaming in the background. I guess she had an emergency. <laughs> My dogs are howling. <laughs> oh, poor Deli. Okay, well, um, she, that was a good point that she made anyway. <laughs> oh, hang on. So let's go ahead and wait for her, her to come back. We'll, we'll, we'll bring Joe back in. Uh, Joe, your mic's live. What's uh, us get your thoughts on that last clip. Yeah, what stood out to me the most was the line where he says, message of liberty, justice, and self-responsibility. That really Mm -hmm. stands out because I think that's something that many politicians talk about, but many politicians, when they get to office, they don't implement or they don't follow that. But I think that's a very uh, important platform. I think that's what really is the major contrast in many ways from conservatives and liberals is, you know, self-responsibility and the price of liberty uh, versus uh, liberals who want to expand the federal government and believe that the solution is to grow the government and to, uh, you know, create a a nanny state and entitlement uh, system, um, you know, sort of make the United States more like Europe. Uh, but, you know, um, I'm mm-hmm. with you, Cindy, um, and um, one concern I do have about Rand Paul is his views on eventually um, not uh, c- 
ceasing to give foreign aid to Israel. And, you know, I really do respect Rand Paul for a lot of what he's accomplished as a senator uh, since 2010. He has done a lot for the conservative uh, Tea Party movement, I have to say, in all honesty. But I, I just cannot support any candidate in any way, shape, or form that is going to that is going to take that stance. Uh, Israel is and has been our number one ally our, in the mm-hmm. Middle East, uh, has been our number one ally. And this is unprecedented. No president in United States history has ever taken a stance against Israel, um, being anti-Israel, uh, as this administration has done. And when I see the growing threat of ISIS and the Islamic Caliphate, as Cindy was uh, bringing up that valid point, it it, kind of scary because I'm wondering, haven't people learned their uh, lesson from World War II of how we allow how the the global community allowed Nazi Germany from 1933 Mm -hmm. to 1939 to build their power to occupy. um, and basically take over most of Europe. And by 1938, most of the global community already knew that there were concentration camps, and yet nobody wanted to do anything or say anything. As as everyone wanted to turn the other cheek, you know, uh, Nabal Chamberlain, uh, who was a former prime minister of uh, Great Britain, uh, thought that he could appease Hitler. And somehow by appeasing Hitler, um, you know, prevent the war. And, you know, that blew up in England's face. Uh, And that's kind of like Mm -hmm. the same stance Obama is taking, that weak foreign policy stance on appeasing. And, um, you know, it's really scary because, you know, as a result of World War II, we lost 50 million lives. Uh, and not even to uh, also six million uh, Jews were exterminated. Uh, you know, basically the almost the entire Jewish population was wiped off the map. And I'm wondering, you know, Cindy, it's scary that if people can't see what's going on in the Middle East, the turmoil, and if they can't see that it has the same patterns and trends as what the Nazis were doing when they were building the power, and, and people who stood up, like Winston Churchill, uh, actually warned the, the global community, hey, if you don't stop Hitler right now in his tracks, it's going to get to a point where this is going to turn into another world war, and nobody wanted to listen. And, you know, I believe we're making the very same mistake with ISIS. We're allowing history to repeat itself, and um, that is very scary because... Um, ISIS, as scary as it sounds, just like Nazi Germany, when they came into power into 1933, it only took them from a span of 1933 to 1939 to A, become the most powerful military in the world, B, occupy almost every single European country, and C, almost succeeded in dominating the world almost succeeded in that, and in exterminating the entire Jewish race. And uh, I remember if history, uh, I'm, I, I'm a history buff, um, back in 1939, that was pretty much the last year where Nazi Germany allowed 
the Jewish people who were able to leave the country. Actually, that was the last year where, he, by decree, he allowed them to leave. But the problem is the United States and FDR refused, refused to take any uh, Jewish refugees. So there were a lot of Jewish refugees that tried to come to the United States, but FDR uh, didn't want to um, pursue that. Uh, I believe Congress and the Senate debated a bill in the House, and they rejected that. And it turned out that it was uh, England that allowed 10,000 uh, Jewish uh, refugees to come in. And so it's kind of ironic compared to all the illegals that they allow coming in today. Exactly. You know what? I didn't even think about it in that context. Exactly. It, it, it's just really, really insane. Uh, and, and on top of that, you know, you would think, Robert, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a compassionate Christian. I believe in helping others, but help comes at home first. And I, I, I honestly believe that. And what really upsets me is all the legal immigrants who did, who, who, came in here legally, which is not an easy process, who came in here by the books, they can't even get the help they need because we have states like New York and California that are actually giving housing, welfare, Medicaid, Medicare, and providing mm -hmm. public school education to illegal immigrants. I mean, it's just insane, Robert. And, and you know, Cindy, I, I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me on that. Definitely, Cindy. It's insane. And what about the help to Americans who are the middle class, which is being squeezed because, uh, you know, the, this current administration has, is destroying the private sector. And, you know, what about Americans? You know, you know, for us to be able to be the free leader of the world and help others, we have to be stable first. And right now we're in, in the worst predicament we've ever been in our, United, in, in our entire United States history. We've never been $17.9 trillion. In the hole, and right now we need to help. Uh, home uh, help needs to come home first. The help needs to come to America first. We need to put ourselves as a priority before we uh, worry about giving aid to our enemies, not not to our allies or nation building or giving millions of dollars in 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 aid to illegal immigrants. No wonder why they keep on crossing the border, because. That's mm -hmm. just sending the message and encouraging them, sure, come on over, because if you make it across the border, we'll give you Medicare. Uh, we'll give you uh, uh, Medicaid. We'll give you public school education. Even de Blasio proposed uh, last week in New York of giving housing to illegal immigrants, Robert. How crazy does that sound? I mean, mm -hmm. it's insane. It, it, it truly is. Well, and, and that's another reason why our public schools are are failing. Here in Pearson, our public school up here is just about 80% Mexican, and probably over half of those are illegals. And That's when, ridiculous. When you, when you have to spend all your uh, money, all the tax money, and by the way, they're not they're not paying into taxes, of course, because right. they're illegal. Mm -hmm. They're not they're not uh, they're not paying into anything. <laughs> Right. The only kind of taxes they're paying are sales tax on whatever they buy. <laughs> True. And that's and that's and and if there isn't a sales tax on food, so uh that's their main thing. But anyway, uh when when you have to spend all your money to try to teach people that 
uh, they don't even know English yet. Um, there's so many of them up there that when, well, for instance, my my son was friends with a, a, a Mexican boy named Saul, and um, in the after Saul had graduated seventh grade, um, <clears throat> I was going to put Ben and, and my kids in the in the private school, or I was going to homeschool them. And I thought, well, I'll homeschool my two girls, and I'll put Ben and Saul. We'll send them to the private school. So <clears throat> I took uh, Saul and I just sat him down with a uh, now remember he has been passed every year through he's gone through the seventh grade they graduated him so where he's going to go into the eighth grade next year right so i sat him down I, and i knew he was going to have to take a test in order to get into the public school i mean the private school um all my kids did too and so <clears throat> so i sat him down and i just handed him one of Tennille's second grade reading books and I said, read this for me. Well, except for a few sight words uh, that he knew, he could not read my daughter's wow. second grade textbook. Also, my daughter, Joy, who had just graduated kindergarten, could read better than him. So wow. I, took him in, I took him in and homeschooled him. But this is our problem. We are graduating these people one grade after the other they can't read they can't write the only thing they can do is a few math problems um and 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 memorize some things okay um that is not that is not acceptable in our nation and that is not a person who is going to have very much to offer in the way of um a professional job or a technical job or anything like that. Um, I agree. They can barely even, well, you know, when you can't write anything down, you can't even make out an application for a job. You can't uh, right. read it. You can't read well, the directions. put them all in Spanish, too. Right. You, you can't, can't even apply for minimum wage. Uh, right. Okay. And that's, of course, why we're getting everything written in Spanish now and Teachers are, mm-hmm. are required to speak to their children in Spanish so that they can get the directions and all that kind of stuff. And that's not a healthy thing for our nation. We are losing no, our culture. Not. We are mm-hmm. losing our culture. And until they, until they shut down the borders and start being more selective, you know, we're the only country that basically has just porous borders. Uh, you don't get into Australia unless you are somebody that they want there. You have to have something to offer. You have to have a um, degree in something, or you have to have a skill, or uh, you know they have to. Ha- you have to have something that they want there in their country. And everybody is screened before you get into Australia. At least that's the way it was when I used to go there. Um, you had to have. You have to have a visa. You don't get in just you know not like uh, Canada just run over the border or whatever, Mexico just run over the border. You have to ca- have a visa and a passport and all that stuff. And um, there's a lot of countries like that uh, around the world. Just try to get into Chile, um, I mean, to, to live. I mean, it's pretty easy to visit those places. But you're not going to move in and become a citizen or, or a voting person in Chile 
or Australia unless you have something they want, unless you are an educated person uh, with some kind of skills. And we are just letting everybody come in no matter what they can do, what they can offer, what if they can uh, if if they can um, uh, support themselves or not, none of that is considered anymore. It's just, and it's also oh, posing a national security threat as well. Well, it is. My my daughter, you know, and a health threat too. Yes, and I've told you yeah. guys before that my daughter is is a Mexican, and uh, she says that. Um, I said something to her the other day about um, people crossing the river, and she said, what, what do you mean crossing the river? They don't have to cross the river anymore. They just walk right on across on the bridges. They're not even stopping them, period. Yeah. It's it's totally open borders right now. In, fact, in Arizona, the they're crossing ranches. Yeah, they're just walking straight in. There's nobody to – there's right. such a market. And so it's such a monumental thing. Uh, it's a colossal problem, and and because we don't have enough, they it's like the num it's like um, it's like uh, sixty sixty uh, people pushing through a door. Eventually, that door is going to break down, you know, and and then just the people are just going to flood through, you know. Um, so the numbers are just uh, extreme now, and and the saddest thing is. Um, the drug lords are just crossing back and forth at will. They do whatever they want. And and they're probably the most dangerous thing to happen to us. And yeah, also plus, on top of that, that, that you know, the medical stuff is some of the things that we've wiped out here in America disease-wise is starting to come back to uh, the, the ones who weren't uh, vaccinated against that. Now, I'm not for over-vaccinating, but... Uh, you know, as it seems like they may be doing now, um, but just the things that we pretty much eradicated here. Now, I do see it's almost the bottom of the hour uh, into the extended period. And just as kind of a reminder, and this is just uh, neither here nor there, I just want to remind folks, uh, since we are talking about Rand Paul and uh, we're talking about his run, I do want to play an audio that, uh, well, this audio is back from 2012. So sometimes it is uh, – good to look backwards uh, before we uh, look forward uh, on someone and a candidate and then they ask, uh, ask why. And once I play this clip, uh, you folks will know we'll make some, some comments on that. So I'm sure this will start sounding familiar to uh, at least a couple of us very soon. Back to Hannity, enduring the spirited Republican primary this election season. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul was out on the trail campaigning for his father, Texas Congressman Ron Paul. But tonight he is here to make a major announcement about 2012 and the presidential race. And we welcome back to the program Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. Sir, how are you? Hey, good to see you, Sean. All right. Um, first of all, before you say what I think you're going to say, did you check in with your congressman father? presidential candidate, well, I guess officially finally uh, dropped out of the race. Well, you know, uh, my first choice had always been my father. I campaigned for him when I was 11 years old. He's still my first pick. 
But you know, now that the nominating process is over, tonight I'm uh, happy to announce that I'm going to be supporting Governor Romney. Yeah. How do you, look, um, if you didn't support your father, by the way, I mean, I would really question family loyalty there, uh, and I think it was totally understandable. And I know, you know what, you love and you respect your dad, and I agree with your dad on many issues. I have no idea why he's still mad at me, and he would reject coming on this program, but that's a whole different story for another day. How, um, tell me why you're supporting Governor Romney. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that Governor Romney and I actually have quite a few similarities. You know, Governor Romney's dad ran for president and was unsuccessful. Governor Romney then went on to support the nominee the same way his dad did. Governor Romney comes from a big family. Um, I don't know them that well, but I think it's a big, loving family. So do I. I come from a family with five kids. Governor Romney has five kids. He's had a long and happy marriage, so have my parents. I think we have a lot of the same family values and uh, trust and, and feeling uh, of the importance of the family unit, and so that I think uh, draws a kinship between our families. But I met with him recently. I had about a 30-minute meeting with him. He was nice enough to uh, meet with me when he was in Washington recently, and we talked about a lot of issues. It was a free-ranging discussion, and we talked about issues, frankly, that are important to me, that are important to my dad and to many of his followers. And many of these, you know, Governor Romney's already taken a position on. One of the big issues for our supporters, for myself and my dad, is auditing the Fed. We think there needs to be more transparency to the Fed and more oversight by Congress. And this is something that Governor Romney uh, was supportive of throughout his campaign and also was supportive of in private to me. We talked about other issues that are important to my dad's followers. My dad has a legion of young followers who are on the Internet, and they think they rule the Internet, and maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they're very concerned about the freedom of the Internet. There's been legislation recently, SOPA, that Governor Romney came out in the debates and was opposed to this SOPA, which would... Uh, take away some of the process of ownership on the Internet, and we were very afraid that it would limit Internet freedom, and Governor Romney's right there with us on those issues also. So I think there's a lot of kinship on those issues. Uh, another big issue for me is the RAINS Act. I'm the chief sponsor in the Senate on a, a bill that would say that any major regulation, and I think we've got so much over-regulation now, but any major rule or regulation that would cost the economy over $100 million should have to come back and be voted on in Congress. Yeah. And uh, Governor Romney's right there with me on that issue. So I think we have a lot in common, a lot of things that we well, will be able to fight together on. But, Senator, two issues you didn't mention that I believe this is a choice election. And on Obamacare, there is one major difference. Uh, even on issues of spending, even though maybe you don't agree that, that for example, the Ryan plan goes fast enough, uh, I know you support and you've signed on to the, the Mac Penny plan. I hope that goes through. Governor Romney, when I asked him about it, seemed pretty intrigued by the idea. But when it comes to fiscal responsibility, Obamacare, there are vast differences here. Do you think this country could afford five, uh, four more years of Obama? No. I mean, my state is really suffering. We stand to lose 50,000 jobs in the coal industry if President Obama continues. I think one thing that uh, Governor Romney would make as a president is he would bring a more balanced approach to regulation. We're going to have some regulation. Some regulation actually protects the environment. 
But President Obama's allowed the tilt and the balance to go so far that he's crushing the economy now and crushing jobs. And I think Governor Romney would have a more balanced approach to regulation. Well, energy and in general. We sorely need that. Excuse me? Yeah, energy in general, Senator. I mean, he's for all the above. He'll start drilling immediately, and he's been very clear about that. Those 50,000 jobs you mentioned in Kentucky, and we can go to West Virginia, and we can go to other places, and fracking, and all these other things. He's in support of all these things, which we all know that President Obama is not. Well, you know, the energy industry, the oil and gas industry, employs 9.2 million people and pays $86 million a day in taxes. And I want to encourage them to produce more oil and gas in our country. These are good American jobs. These are jobs that can't be outsourced. Energy jobs are great for our country. And I know Governor Romney will allow the Keystone Pipeline to occur. I know that he will encourage the oil and gas industry, and he won't say, oh, this is terrible that corporations make money. That's the kind of attitude that's making companies want to go overseas. We need to encourage companies right. to stay and come, come back to America, not we, leave the country. Um, you are very well loved in the Tea Party movement. Will you go out on the campaign trail for Governor Romney? Yes, and uh, I think uh, that I can be an asset in solidifying the conservative base of the party. But I also think that uh, myself, my father, and the movement that he started attracts a lot of independence also. So a lot of these young people aren't necessarily the conservative base. Right. But, you know, in my discussions with Governor Romney, I brought forward exactly what I believe, and that's that you and I have had this discussion before, that there should be checks and balances, that the right to declare war starts with the legislature, that it's important that we separate these powers. And we had a very good and, I think, honest discussion about a lot of these things. And I came away from it feeling that he will be a very responsible commander-in-chief. I don't think he'll be reckless. I don't think he'll be rash. And I think that he realizes and believes, as I do, that war is the last resort and something that we don't rush willy-nilly into. And I came away feeling that he'll have mature attitude and beliefs towards foreign policy. All right, Rand Paul, I think it's a big uh, endorsement coming from you, and uh, we'll be looking for you out on the campaign trail. And as always, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Sean. And coming up, a busy night tonight. Now, remember, Cindy, in 2012, Rand Paul made this endorsement of Romney while Newt Gingrich was still actively in the race. Do you recall that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Yeah, so even when there was a conservative, you know, in the race, you still uh, endorsed uh, endorsed Romney. I know we talked about that at length. I just want to let the folks remember that. Uh, so now, of course, one thing that you know about war, that's definitely something uh, that is uh, still the same, it appears, uh, with Rand Paul. But when it comes to the, um, you know, conservatives, well, I don't know. I think he threw his uh, support behind Romney uh, early on. I think it did have a, an effect on that, too, to bring over those uh, Ron Paul supporters uh, over to the Romney camp. So I wonder what that 30 minutes uh, conversation with Romney really uh, was about. I would have liked to have been a fly on that wall, certainly. So I just wanted to make sure where I brought that back as well. So let's go ahead and see if uh, Angela's still on the line. Angela, you still there? She's typing. <laughs> She's typing. Oh, the dog, okay. The dog is still barking, <laughs> she says. <laughs> so I guess she she's going to have to listen. Um, anyway, um, 
uh, Romney, uh, you know, you have to say that Romney couldn't possibly, uh, well, I don't know, I guess you don't have to say that, but I, I don't imagine Romney could have been any worse than Obama. Uh, there are some huge problems with Romney that uh, Rand didn't even mention um, at in that interview with Sean. Uh, for instance, the fact that he was actually the architect of the health care plan uh, and it wasn't working in his own state. And so why did he, you know, it, 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 it's, I don't know, it's, it's just incredible how politicians can leave out information that might be disadvantageous or, you know, then they make sure they add in the information they think is what the peop- hit their audience is going to want to hear, okay? And um, he mentioned all the things that are good about Romney um, and failed to, uh, to say all the things that were bad about Romney. And, you know, on this show, you know, we were trying to get a, uh, we were trying, we were working very hard to get a brokered uh, convention. And according right. to Barbara, according According to Barbara Haney of uh, uh, the Alaska delegation, we came within a hair's breadth of getting that, mm-hmm. and that's the reason they panicked and changed the rules and uh, did all kinds of crazy stuff during that convention. Stuff that people right. were walking out, people were walking out left and right. Um, people like Morton Blackwell were were kept from his we, which meeting. we had him on the show. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was kept from the meeting. Um, there was many things that went on there um, that uh, we should have left it open all the way up to the convention. Nobody should have endorsed anybody before the conven- convention because some conventions can change everything. We have found out. Well, I mean, it was uh, towards you know, and it was towards the end, and it was towards the end of the primary, as uh, Angela pointed out. However, and, and that very well, you know, that was very was the case. However, uh, it wasn't over. I mean, Ron Paul was uh, the second last person to uh, concede, and then, if people recall, uh, the, the very last person besides Romney to uh, concede the race was Gingrich. Yeah. Um, so basically what I'm, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is nobody should have been endorsing anybody at that point. Um, and, and yet, uh, like I said, if he, if he's an opportunist, then he may have been, um, uh, making himself some brownie points, shall we say? Uh, with all the elite people by making these elite um, uh, sponsorships, okay? So because he made those endorsements, is he going to be more likely to be supported by the elite uh, GOP uh, come the primaries? We'll have to wait and see. But it's like um, Angela said earlier, um, Anybody that Rove endorses, I'm going to be real suspect of. So if I hear that <laughs> Rand Paul is being endorsed by Rove, or if they, if they start saying nice things about him on Fox, 
I'm going to start worrying. Um, in the meantime, I'm just going to sit back and, and enjoy the nice speeches that are coming from him and everybody else because they're all going to be, um, they're all going to be directed at us conservatives because they know that they're going to have to court us and get us back. Uh, the Republicans are not going to win an election without us. So um, if they don't well, get you know, us like back... They, yeah, they didn't last time. That was obvious. Exactly. And I think they've seen two elections go south with, uh, with um, thumbing their noses at uh, constitutionalists. And so um, uh, as long as that as long as that is in the works, um, they have to get us back. They just have to get us back. And and so will they start supporting people like Rand and, and people like uh, – I kind of doubt they'll support Cruz? Cruz. Yeah, I don't think Cruz – Well, yeah, they'd support Rand before has, Cruz, I think. Yeah, he hasn't played the game. Uh, he hasn't made those right. endorsements. And he's the one that, you know, had the filibuster and all that. So – I don't mm-hmm. think they're give him any slack, <laughs> which makes him not. Uh, that makes it uh, nice for me. But anyway, um, uh, oh yeah, Angie, she says yeah. But the Republicans are blaming the Libertarians and ignoring the fact that we constitutional conservatives also sent it out. So. <laughs> So, oh, yeah, know. certainly. A lot of your conservatives and libertarians uh, decided well, to know. either stay home or, as many did, yeah. uh, vote yeah. for someone that uh, adhered more to their you know, their principles. But, yeah. but I guarantee you, it's it's not the libertarians that are going to make or break the, the Republican Party. It's the base. It's the constitutional conservatives that are going to make or break that, uh, the election. And it's not just a matter of convincing them that, okay, this Republican is not so bad. You remember when Romney was anybody but anybody but Obama? That isn't going mm-hmm. to work. If you want to if you want to win an election, you have to get your base to the polls. You have to get your whole membership to the polls. Okay, uh, the Democrats are paying people to go to the polls. They're they're Lining up buses. They're raising people from the dead to get to the polls, from my understanding. (laughs) Exactly. They're moving all around the country so they can vote vote twice and ten times, Mm -hmm. like the one. Okay. So they're doing their death level best uh, to get out their vote. The Republicans are saying to its uh, base, oh, don't worry about it. Come out and vote for us. It'll be okay. We're better than Obama. That is not going to get people to the polls. <laughs> if you don't excite your base and and make, give them a reason to come to the polls, they're not going to go. Uh, and that's why we lost last election was because we had a terrible turnout, and uh, people people were uh, now they they're blaming a lot of us conservatives because. There were some conservatives. Well, I know I got a lot of blame uh, afterwards. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes seriously, I mean, when when it, when it first started, sometimes you think 
you know, Bard's logic in, in our audience was the, you know, sole reason. <laughs> you just thought we were Rush Limbaugh. Why he lost. I'm you sorry? You just thought we were Rush Limbaugh. You just thought we were Rush Limbaugh show or something. <laughs> I said well, what? There were some of the calls and people had given <laughs> Anyway, um, but our little piddly people um, and even across the country, all the conservatives that stayed home and didn't vote or voted for someone else, that still wasn't enough to make up the difference in all the the illegal voting, the fraudulent voting, and and the mm. the could oh gosh! I want just, the hanging chads back. That's what I'd like to see. <laughs> <laughs> this is like well, I do not trust this electronic uh, voting. I do not trust it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Angie says, but fear is the fear is all the Republican establishment has. Well, that's all anybody has these days. If you'll notice, nobody wants to put forth any agenda uh, that's positive. Um, first of all, it it doesn't get the press that negative agenda does. Um, if you put out a bunch of negative stuff, it gets a lot of press. Um, mm-hmm. Gingrich had a whole bunch of awesome stuff in his new contract, his 21st century contract with America. But that was not even mentioned. It wasn't mentioned anywhere. The only thing that was mentioned was, was his, his, the things that he would say about that that were negative, that, you know, things like uh, we're going to get rid of the department of education or, you know, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Or the fact that he had mistresses and, or, uh, Affairs and stuff like that. It was all mm, blah blah blah. Crap. I, I don't think that has any bearings on how he'd run a country. But go ahead. Right. Well, it it it, it does. Character matters. But like I said before, it I should I I saw that he was a man who had changed. But anyway, beyond all that, negative gets the press, not positive. And so if Republicans right. don't get off that track uh, and keep and stop playing that game. Uh, with the negative negativity, if they don't start uh, saying, "Look, this is our plan. We have a contract. We have a new contract, just like the new Gingrich contract, or we have a plan that's going to work. This is this, and everything on this, everything in this plan has worked before, and it will work again. You know, and if they don't do that, it won't matter who they put up as their candidate because we're all going to stay home." And I say we. Well, I'm go. a voter. I go and vote. I'm a voter. I'm going to vote no matter what. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people sitting home. Yeah, I voted. Yeah, just didn't, you people know. in churches, <laughs> and they're not doing any. They're not voting. They're not doing anything. So they they don't bother to vet candidates. They don't want to know. They don't. And then after they voted for a candidate, if they did, they don't bother to find out what that candidate did. After it got it, after that person got up to Washington. So. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and uh, bring Joe in because it looks like we only uh, have about ten minutes before I have to start uh, closing things out uh, for the evening. And so let's go ahead and uh, bring Joe back in. And let's just, you know, I'm I'm still hoping. I mean, it's it may, it may be unrealistic at this time, uh, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe uh, Newt will uh, throw his hat back in the ring, which would be great, in my opinion. Uh, at this point in time, I see it unlikely. I have real. I have uh, noticed that he is not spending much time on CNN lately. I don't know if that means anything, 
or if anyone has any information on that, I'd really like to hear that. But it does look like he's kind of doing his own thing. But uh, I, I have noticed uh, his lack of being on CNN. As I said, I don't know if that means anything. Uh, but that definitely bears uh, looking into. But let's go ahead and uh, bring it over to you, Jokes. We do get only have about uh, a couple more minutes left before I have to start shutting things down. So for the evening, well, go Robert, ahead. Robert, real quick, let me just say yes. it's probably because it's probably because they couldn't take that they couldn't take his success any longer. His his ideas were actually getting to their listeners who who were liberals, and they, he was probably changing some minds. <laughs> they couldn't have. No, that. got it. Yeah. <laughs> Good point, good point, uh, Cindy. Go ahead. Oh, and then real quick, uh, just a little bit of a uh, little point of celebration, at least for me and for all you Game of Thrones fans out there, it is coming back this Sunday, so I'm looking forward to it. Go ahead, Joe. All right. Oh, since you mentioned Game of Thrones, also uh, the second series of Turn, I don't know if you've heard of that series, Turn, is also coming mm-hmm. uh the second series which is a really it's it's a really exciting um uh I don't know if anyone saw the first series of turn it's a, it's a, it's about the uh you know the the days before we uh before we even were fighting against the british for uh independence when we were uh, you know it's kind of based in it's based in the late 1700s, around that period of time, Interesting. Uh, when the colonists were defecting, uh, or the colonists were starting to sway towards, you know, uh, being uh, not not approving of uh, the overtaxation with the British, and and a lot of that going on. So no, the second season is coming. So that's that's really exciting. Um, that's that's a great show to watch. Um, but um, you know, when I look back at 2012. You know, I, I guess I see it from a different perspective. To be to be quite frank, you know, I was a I was a Republican back then. Um, the former the establishment was not even happy with the choices that they had to begin with. I mean, I think a lot of people for, forget that uh, they were not excited or exuberant about Romney or Bachman or or uh, you know. Um, Herman Cain or even Romney in the beginning. They were, uh, you know, trying to mm-hmm. go through every angle of asking the former governor of Indiana to jump in. He said no. They asked Mike Huckabee. There's a reason behind that. You know, they were obviously not happy with what was in front of them, including Romney, to begin with. And when, you know, their top choices said no, they were not going to get in the race, you know, they thought that Romney was the most viable option. And I, I think people, you know, it, from the perspective I see it, there was great desperation in 2012. And I, at that point, it was, a, it was a matter of the lesser of the two evils. And I think many Republicans, former Republicans like me, were just desperate to have anyone but Obama, anyone who's better mm-hmm. than Obama. You, you know, even though it would be the lesser of the two evils, beat Obama. And I think that's where a lot of the support came for Romney. Uh, I was not inspired by him. I didn't. I don't believe he rallied the base. But at that point, desperation sunk in with me and a lot of Americans who said, "Who cares? Right now, we just want who's the best guy to beat Obama." And I think out of the field, in, in respect to Newt Gingrich and Herman Cain and every and and Rick Santorum and Michelle Bachman, it was not an exciting field. 
obviously not not any none of the candidates failed to inspire or unify the party as Reagan did. Reagan was the last Republican president to do that. He did that without the backing of the establishment, came into the race as a non-establishment candidate where the party was fractured, but he was able to, his message resonated, and it was able to attract the party and unite it. And we have not seen a field like that since 1980, unfortunately. And that is the reality of the matter. In 2012, you know, as much as Newt Gingrich has accomplished another candidate, it just was not enough for other people to wow the conservative base and unite the party. And I myself was so disappointed that the Republicans could not win four Senate seats to gain the majority and that Romney could not close the race. That's when I decided to defect from the Republican Party. And right now that's where we're in peril. We have a divided party. And unless we have one person, one leader, that can unite the party, that can bridge the gap between the Tea Party conservatives, the moderates, and the the Christian base of the party, with a message that resonates, we are not going to win. And unless we have someone with the qualities of Reagan that has the ability to do that, we are not going to win because united, we cannot win. With a Democratic Party united and us divided, we will never win. And the problem is, in my opinion, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, I respect everything they have accomplished. I don't think that I, I don't I cannot envision them as people who would be able to unite or bridge those certain gaps of the party. That is the only way that will unite us in order to defeat the Democrats. And I don't think and, it's and I don't Ted think... Cruz or Rand Paul. And unfortunately, at this point, I don't see anyone who might be coming up uh, to run, whether uh, that could bring everybody together. I don't think Christie would, uh, would do it. I think he, there's, I think the conservatives wouldn't swallow him, no pun intended. Um, uh, I don't think Jeb Bush. I think this country's uh, worn from uh, the Bush name, and I think uh, the conservatives will see that. And I don't think you know Jeb Bush could be able to. Uh, bring people together. Maybe Bobby Jindal. I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe he'd be somebody. I mean, I still you know, push for, for Gingrich, but to be that as a may, and you know, maybe Bobby Jindal or I don't know, someone like that could can do it. I'm I'm not sure. Or, or uh, you know, at this point, I don't know who would. To be honest, uh, outside of you know Gingrich, I mean, that's the people that they'd be pressing. But yeah, our only hope is a dark horse, and we have yet to see what that's going to be. Reagan what about a Kasich? A what do you think about a John Kasich? Uh, I, I really don't support his stance on Common Core. Um, you know, there's well, yeah, me a couple of other things. Yeah, I'm not crazy about his stance on Common Core. I mean, he's done great things with Ohio, but I, I, I'm just there's other factors that uh, I would not favor Kasich. If anyone. If the name were to pop up, I, I think Scott Walker, going back to what Cindy was saying at the beginning of the show, I mean, he has showed great backbone. He's fought three elections in five years, successfully won them, and he's been able to accomplish yeah. uh, what many have thought was the unthinkable against unions. And uh, he seems to be very popular uh, amongst uh, Tea Party conservatives and the moderates. 
he may be our best hope of bridging the gap at this point. If I had to throw a name out there of other potentials who are already hinting, such as Marco Rubio, Bobby Jindal, I agree with you, Robert. Um, I, I I don't think if Bush get, came in the race, he's not going to get very far. Uh, Bobby Jindal um, is not really even popular in his own state. Uh, yeah, you're right. That's the scary part. I, I, I don't foresee any viable options that I can even think of, and that's the scary part. You know, Scott, well, uh, Scott Walker may very well be the person, it, perhaps, you know, depending on how Ted Cruz goes, but I think uh, the establishment would never back Ted Cruz. They may back no. uh, Iran Paul. Um, so maybe it would come down between, you know, Iran Paul and someone else. But um, but I think that if Rand Paul would get too much of the establishment backing. I think the uh, grassroots conservatives and the constitutional conservatives in the party uh, would be like, eh, no. Anyone who gets too comfortable with the establishment, you know, as Cindy's pointed out, is probably not someone who uh, we would be interested uh, in having because it's kind of like the title says, uh, will they take on uh, the status quo or get along to get along? And have we seen more of a Rand Paul getting along to get along, or we've seen uh, more of a Rand Paul willing to take on that status quo. One quick observation I want to make, and I I promise this is a really quick observation. I've been wanting to make this whole show. Um, I've noticed that so far there are only two candidates in the race, and they happen to be pro Tea Party conservatives who don't associate themselves with the establishment. My observation, my instinct, Robert and Cindy, is that the establishment is waiting to see who's going to jump in the fray before they decide who they're going to merge or who they're going to support as their puppet to be uh, to back them for the for the nomination. And the fact that the establishment is not even hinting anyone of interest shows me that I don't think they have anyone in mind yet. And I definitely think, like I said, my instinct is they're waiting to see who is going to jump in the fray and then assess how they're going to go forward in choosing who they're going to back. And it's interesting how the first two candidates to enter the race are anti-establishment candidates. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree, and I, I, I might have mentioned something about that uh, earlier. About or, well, I, I call them the firestorms or something like that, lightning rods. Yeah, two lightning rod candidates Right. Uh, is how I describe them. But I think that's a great way of uh, capping things off for this evening. I want to thank you, Joe, uh, for coming on. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, it's good to hear from you as well, uh, Angela, you. Tessa. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome, Joe. Anytime, uh, of course, we always like to have you on. And then, of course, uh, you, Sandy, it was uh, interesting and uh, good to have uh, the nice heated debate uh, that we had uh, this evening uh, when it came to the, you, the vouchers thing about nature. The three of us couldn't agree on everything. It's, it's rare I that we do that. that. <laughs> What's that, Cindy? Well, it's Bart Logic show, you know. It's we we don't agree that's on right. everything, but that's, that's what it. makes that that's what brings the intensity to the show. It's our you know, the different views that we have and then it, it, it collides together and that's what makes it a fascinating show. It's definitely not one-sided and lopsided like MSNBC and I think that's what really is the contrast with Bart Logic's show. I think that's what really what attracts the listeners is having that diversity and not having everything lopsided 
one way like you would get from MSNBC, which is, you know, they're only to the left and only to the left, and that's it. So, Can I just uh, point out one thing uh, about Scott Walker before you go? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, and then we'll had, do the closing uh, song. Go ahead. Well, a lot of this presidential stuff is all about money, and that may be why these two guys jumped into the race so soon. It's because they're trying to get to the money sooner. Um, but, uh, you know, Scott Walker was, he made, he got just a state, this is just in his state now, his, uh, he has been able to raise uh, about $82.5 million dollars and uh, he has the support of people like Sheldon Adelson and um, Sarah Atkins and a few of the other big ones, plus a lot of. Um, uh, well, those are know. guys you have to be careful with because didn't Gingrich have the support of one yeah. of one or both of those guys before they bailed out on him? Well, Sheldon Adelson did bail out on on Newt, but uh, he could see the train coming, you know, and uh, that that. Newt was about to get crushed by the train, I think, is why he, he backed out. But anyway, um, what I'm saying is that I think that Scott Walker is somebody who could be a um, – he could be someone who is viable enough that he knows how to raise money, in other words. You've got to be able to raise a lot of You're going to have to be able to get at least close to what the Democrats can raise. And uh, he is one that can can raise money. And we may have uh, yet to be seen, but uh, I want to thank everyone, of course, again for uh, coming on, whether they're listening to the show live or listening now at the archive. We appreciate it. And definitely share the link with uh, all the folks. Uh, put it on an email list, uh, create an email list to send uh, the link out to folks uh, with the descriptions of the show uh, so they can call and enjoy uh, the show as well, as well as uh, get the number so that they can come in and talk with us uh, on subsequent shows, uh, which, will, of course, would be really appreciated and enjoyed. So I will end tonight, as I do every night, and that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And you can hear more of her music by going to www.aubreyashburn.com. So take care, everyone. Good night, and see you then. Good night. Bye, Joe. Bye, everybody. Bye, Robert. Bye, Cindy. Bye, Robert. Bye, Angie. Thank you.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.